Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Lumen Industries Radio. This is a Mangum Talks podcast covering the Apple Plus TV series Severance. I'm your host, Lee. And I'm joined by my co-host, Spencer. Spencer, how are you today? What the fuck happened in this episode? Yeah, it's that kind of reaction. That's what? the reaction I'm looking for. Yeah, it's wild. We're, we're opening with a murder and then finding out that somebody we had foundationally thought was dead isn't. And as we've met them and they're around in some state of being. What is happening with the show? How is it continually still surprising me? I'm extremely excited to hear you talk through what happened, some of the reveals and some of your theories, because I can tell you that this was the part, you know, I like to tell you about like when I was watching it week by week, I got to this part and I, I really like gave myself a headache. Like I was, (laughs) I had so many different theories and a lot of them competing. And like, I would, I just talked my wife to death about it. And I like, it consumed everything online that I possibly could. And I, I, there was not an episode. So that we've had so far that made me more excited for the next episode than this one. This was the one where I was like, I cannot, like I, I was like shaky. I cannot wait till next week because where they left us, I was like, Oh, this changes every my. This changes everything I thought Lumen was or could be. Yeah, there are levels of surprises that generate a certain response in people, me included. This is that at that level of where your first, my first reaction was to deny that I was actually seeing it. Yes, I did. It that was too. that. Well, no, no, that's no, not her. No, that's not her. it just looks no, like her. Look, no. stop. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm yelling at myself in my head. Like, stop being racist. Not all Asian. <laughs> Stop it, Terry. Stop it. And then I'm like, no, no, everyone, everyone had the same rate. Everyone had the same rate. It's the same person. And then it just snowballs from there because suddenly you start unpacking scenes that you you had previously just filed away as, oh, that was odd. Now all fall into line. Hell, that wellness meeting that Mark had with Miss Casey worked Miss Coble at the candle there. Yeah. Goebbels lines this episode. Oh, does Mark see his ex see his wife anywhere when he's about in the day? It's like, dear God, her level of testing is at an entirely different level than I'd even imagined. Yeah, it was. A, I feel like it was a really fantastic episode. I also say that this is the episode that we had a lot of people reaching out on social asking us if we've seen the episode, when this episode, when our episode of the podcast was going to post, and we actually had someone who was hyped enough on Twitter that I, I finally just broke bad and was like, look, this, I, I explained to the person and anybody else who's following us and, and, mm. and followed the conversation. Let me tell this is what I told the person. Let me tell you how big a deal this episode was. <laughs> Spencer proactively texted me. How I, often does that happen? At once, twice a year. It's, it's like never. Not just proactively. The moment I was done with the episode, I texted you live and you were so confused by it. You thought it was applying to a different conversation. I did. I didn't know. Cause you just said, fuck, what the fuck, what the fuckity fuck. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, of course now it makes perfect sense. Cause I realized that you had watched the episode, but I, I shared that with the people on, on social that you, you were so hyped about it that you proactively texted me. And I think that's just got people more and more excited to, to hear your take on it. And I'm excited too. It's an epi- there are so many moments in this episode that I'm focusing on that one as being just the all-shining moment of shock when a few minutes earlier I got to see hear John Turturro say motherfucker the best yeah. I've ever heard the phrase uttered. It was fantastic. His heel turn was absolutely epic. All right, oh, let's, so let's let's get into the episode. So uh, our 
segments around here. We're going to start with the recap. I will lead the recap every week heroically. Bang, bang, shoot them up. I'll do line by line. The recap as Spitzer chimes in with witty anecdotes, witticisms, and hopefully a lot of theories. We'll jump to best line of the episode. I and I alone am emperor best line of the episode. Spencer, however, gamely every week supplies me nominees. He will supply me nominees with best line of the episode. Spencer, I've got a leader in the clubhouse again this week. Last week I had <laughs> one and I got, I got a leader in the clubhouse. I got one that I'm really excited that you'll have to convince me isn't the line of the episode, which sometimes you do. So you may do that. And then we will go to employee of the week where we award Illumin employee of the week. I also have my thoughts on this. I, I, I come into, the, there's been a couple of times we've done this podcast where I've come in employee of the week. And I'll be honest with you. I, I wanted to talk it out with you. I didn't have an idea. I've got an idea this week. You're, you're going to argue for position because I'm I'm ready to be persuaded on this one because this is such a weird one to assess when the categories of employees have gotten so firmly separated from each other in terms of how we're vetting them. Yeah, I've got I've got an, an idea of who I want to give it to, but we'll talk it out and then we will go to America's favorite segment. I will kick back, sit back, and Spencer. <laughs> will ask questions and typically how this works every week is Spencer will ask a question and I will either answer said question in whole. Sometimes I do that rarely. I will answer part of it. That's usually what happens. Or I will tell Spencer that is in fact a question that he asked, which is the the most not answer answer you can ever give with the most smug little grin of knowledge on your face. All right. So before we dive into this episode, which is episode seven of season one titled defiant jazz, Hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about other things going on in the Mangum Talks podcast network. You can check out all our stuff at MangumTalks.com. You can go to any podcast platform, type in Mangum Talks. Just type in those two words, Mangum Talks. All of our stuff will pop up. Spencer and I have reviewed an awful lot of television, movies, books over the, over the years. A lot of different things. Spencer, you know we've done this five years now. We've hit our five-year anniversary. I was thinking about that the other day, and that is shocking. We've done it. We've, we're over five years now of podcasting. We started with Game of Thrones, and in that vein, we do some fantasy stuff. We've, you know, we reviewed uh, House of the Dragon. We'll do House of the Dragon season two, but we've also done a lot of other fun stuff along the way. Most recently, we wrapped up Succession and Ted Lasso, and coming at the end of the month, we will review Ahsoka over on Mangum Talk Star Wars. And in the interim in that, Spencer and I will talk about new shows we want to do because, uh, you know, we kind of finished Strike. out some of, yeah we finished out some of our older stuff and so i think i think there's a chance for spencer and i maybe to go to some back catalog stuff as we get into next year which there will be a bit of a dearth right in our content going into next year because of the writer strike and the actor strike that spencer just referenced mm-hmm. so more news on that to come you can check out all that stuff at mangumtalks.com and if you want news on what we're doing go to facebook.com slash mangumtalks or twit go to twitter or x or whatever the hell elon's calling it today at mangumtalks I post all of our updates there live. All right, Spencer, you ready to get in the recap? More than I can express. Woo, let's do it. Episode seven, Defiant Jazz. We start, well, I'll tell you what I started with. I started with yet another week, yet another commercial for the Beanie Baby movie. Did you see this? This time I skipped it, or at this time it was skipped. It, it was skipped before I could sit down. I was making dinner and Bridget had already got the show ready. So I don't know what, what was there, in for, there ahead. Hey, here's what, here's the thing about the Beanie Baby movie. I'll move on it looks like it may fall into the category of better than it has any right to be like the Tetris movie was you know, previously. Yes. Or what I'm hearing the Barbie movie is like where it's like, which I can vouch for that one. That was surprisingly good. Wait, you went to see the Barbie movie. I went to see the Barbie movie as the only person in that theater that wasn't wearing pink. I went with eight friends that were all very well prepared to see the Barbie movie. And they roped in me at the last moment. Have you seen Oppenheimer? No, we didn't. We didn't do the pairing, even though they were they were across the hall from each other. Okay, I'll say this. Just speaking as, I can't think. I can speak as like God now. I'm going to speak as God. 
as God looking at the universe. <laughs> is this a foreign feeling for you? You're used to this. Uh, it's it's pretty common. Uh, yeah, of course. As speaking as God, the the over under the betting odds that Spencer would see Barbie before Oppenheimer, <laughs> it's an Fair. unbelievable upset. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I had, I had no thoughts about seeing it at all. And they were said like, hey, we're going to see it. You want to go? It's like, I know nothing about it. But yeah, sure, I'll hang out with y'all. You know a few things, Barbie, Ken, you know. I, I, I did not own any personally. My sister had a collection. I knew that kind of reference. I knew they were by Mattel. I had a little bit of a vague idea of the history of the doll. Didn't know where the movie was going to go with it. I was pretty impressed. It was a surprisingly funny, effectively satirical film. And I'll say this, uh, Oppenheimer was incredible, but completely different than everything you just said about that. Yeah. And, uh, and and definitely worth seeing. But if you think you're going to see a movie about World War II or the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you are wrong. It is a movie about a person. It's about Robert J. Oppenheimer, and that's it. It's just about the person. I've heard that it is the most Christopher Nolan of all Christopher Nolan, and always, and always representing what you usually assume about his style. All right, there you go. You get two... Two plus ones on both of those movies, and I am going to watch the Beanie Baby movie. I'll tell you that. Then we get the privacy on. Lots of O and D discussion. Bert and Irving. Bert introducing MTR. Maybe mm-hmm. we should work together on this. Mark is right. Coble coming down on Mark. Mark's sister and the rich lady. What in the fuckity fuck? Dylan walking, waking up on the outside. Mm-hmm. What is it we <laughs> actually do here? We surf here, you child. Mark on a date, talking about his ex-wife. Coble and Grainer looking for Ragabi. Mark meeting the person. And then we get the warning consequent, uh, contained sequences of flashing lights or patterns. So we start with Mark asking who this person is. She says, come with me. We are assuming at this point, probably <clears throat> accurately, that we are now meeting Rikabi. That's what I'm, I'm assuming. They walk. Dimly lit area. Looks like they are walking around a series of buildings. Definitely could be a campus. They walk and walk down a stairwell. Interesting use of lights in this sequence, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Because it- it's a lot of backlighting and side lighting. Very interesting. Yeah, it was it was an interesting degree of judging silhouettes because they were they weren't always clear which characters were moving in any one particular direction, which added to the paranoia knowing that Grainer was headed in their particular direction. So I'm going to go ahead and start calling this character Ragabi because of the conversation that Grainer had with yeah Coble, where they she's at the college, yeah, she understands how chips work. I'm going to get her now. I'm Grainer saying I'm going to her right now. Yeah, she reintegrated Petey. All the threads are there that, hi, this is Ragabi. Nice to meet you. Yeah, Mark asks who she is, and she describes herself as the one who helped your friend. Helped? You mean reintegration? (laughs) Killed him. She says reintegration didn't kill him. She apparently gave him post-op instructions, gave Petey post-op instructions. But instead, Petey ran away at the first sign of sickness. Mark asks her if she's a doctor. Well, she's clearly not a medical doctor. If she's in all, was it all working under the assumption that patients would follow post-op instructions? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, she says, I put that chip in your head. Whoa. And I'm still the only person who can deactivate it. Yeah. They keep walking. They end up in a lab. He says, maybe I don't want it deactivated. And Ragabi with the wonderful point in all caps in my notes. This right. Is well, a solid hit. Right. Well, maybe your any does. You wonder what he thinks about all this, don't you? You wonder if he's happy. She says she hates the term any. She calls it infantilizing. I think she's got a point. She says Mark has been severed for two years. So he's really just a quote baby. He says my any lives his own life. And as a result, I get to live mine. She says he only exists because of you. And for all intensive purposes, he is you. And you can see Mark is struggling with this. She says, do you really think he's different down there? Combs his hair differently, laughs at different jokes. Maybe he loves it. You're right. But maybe he doesn't. Maybe he dreams every day about clawing his way to the surface. But you wouldn't know. 
You'll never know. You brought him into this world without his permission, based on your own desire for emotional convenience. Whoa. That, that is a heavy hitter of a line, and it's telling how effective and just damaging this is that Mark's best rejoinder to this is, I'm not a bad person. Which I feel like in any conversation of where someone feels the need to have to express that, they're acknowledging that they're being suddenly confronted with the fact that, oh shit, maybe I'm a bad person. You and I, you and I are such on the same wavelength because I was just about to say, like, if you ever have to say I'm not a bad person in a conversation, you're losing. You're, you're down on the cards, right? We always do the boxing analogy. It's a lot of 10-8 rounds before you say, I'm not a bad person. Anyone who says, I'm not a bad person, is no longer arguing with the other person. They're trying to condense themselves. Because that is a useless thing to argue to somebody else. That is only a, sta a statement for your own identity. I also enjoyed that we got a little bit of what Mark thinks about his any, right? Because we, we know the reason. We spent enough time with Mark's Audi that we know the reason why he did the severance procedure. Mm -hmm. but we have never heard him talk explicitly about the rights or the feelings of his any, and he's being forced to do that now. And what I took from this is that Mark really, really tries not to think about it. Plainly. If his best defense is, well, my any gets to live his own life, he has not pondered to any measure or degree what that life is. He is happily assigned that away to something he's maintaining willful ignorance with respect to. Yeah, she says, I think you want to do what's right. Both of you, they hear something and we turn and it's Mr. Grainer. Now, this fucked me up the way they did with the camera because I thought Grainer saw her and he addresses Mr. Scout. We work together down there. Um, you having a chat with someone, Mark? It's okay. I'm a friend. So he, first off, Audi Mark doesn't even know who Grainer is. And Grainer, when he's talking to Mark, the camera pans out, no Ragabi. I would all... I would all, I wondered to what degree this was intentional because I'd almost assign this into a category of an error in filmmaking because I was straight there with you where I had to rewatch the scene three times and go, oh shit, is Ragabi real? That's what How I did she suddenly too. disappear? I How is she was fading out? Her. Yeah. And that is not at all what they're going for, plainly. But the scene is more set up in that direction than it is in the correct read that she's kind of blocked by the screen and he can't see her. I'm guessing they were going for adding a certain degree of dramatic tension and also to add to the shock value of her suddenly then reappearing behind him and smacking him down. But I think I don't think we're alone in, among the audience and being pretty confused by that scene in terms of its or, uh, character blocking. See, it's interesting how you describe that because I took from what you just said that you almost assume that they tripped up a little bit, maybe made a mistake in, in their framing or their emphasis that, but this actually really worked for me, but I was also confused like you, but yeah. I, it worked for me because I love that they constantly play on the, the real and the surreal sure. and not knowing just how affected the brains of these people are, who've gone through the severance procedure. Cause they've uh, wait for this, Spencer. They've implanted, mm. they've implanted in oh, our brain. Oh, they've implanted in us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, doubt about the um, like the what is reality? What can psychological? They yeah, the like their the their mental capacity, their psychological capacity, and then any detrimental effects that might have come from the procedure. So it worked for me, but ultimately, what we get is Ragavi whacking the shit out of Mister Grainer with a baseball bat and hitting him over and over again, killing him. That shocked me. I, I I did not have a full read under this character, other than she was. She was in that category of angry about the concept of innies that suggests a certain degree of either zealotry or spurned, you know, belief or personal connection. So I knew she was invested. 
I didn't have a frame of reference to bet that that level of investment was up to the level of murder. Wasn't expecting that, but she does not hesitate for a half second. It's in self-defense. Grainer would try to do bad things to her or set in motion things that would happen very poorly for her. But it's a different level to then progress that to beating someone to the death, beating someone to the death, crushing in their skull with an aluminum baseball bat. Yeah, I mean, I I think it, I this is like a, when I, last podcast, when I, I said the word entrapment. Yeah. Like, I, th- I think it was in self-defense, but I don't think it rises to the legal definition of self-defense, right? Like, I, I do think Mr. Grainer would have hurt her, but I don't, we didn't see that, right? She just, she was so proactive that I don't think it would the, hold up. The legal justification would not exist. She'd be able to potentially make some argument for excuse. She, but in terms of asserting literal self-defense, it would be a struggle given the lack of knowledge or affirmative acts on his part. Nor necessarily accurate framing that they would intend to kill her. But we don't know what Lumen's fully capable of. Yeah, and I don't think she cares because I don't think she's nah, going to join, she, she, join society anytime soon. She doesn't want someone to interfere with her plans. That's so, why she killed him. Yeah, so she tells Mark to help with the arms. Mark is just yelling, oh, fuck, oh, no, oh, fuck. <laughs> Question for you, Spencer. If you're Mark in this situation, would you have helped her move the body? No, I think my default reaction would be, I'm out and just go. Just like, nope, I have no, I have no investment yet in this. I'm leaving. I'm not sure I would have left because she was talking about being able to deactivate his chip. She made some great moral arguments about the Yinniati thing. She has this history with Petey, but moving the body, I, a, I think that's is... Invest, that's he, committing to a cause. Yeah, I don't want to do that. So Mark is struggling as they drag this guy saying, oh, fuck, oh, no, I work with this guy, She, which he just learned, by the way. So Mark, don't don't get all like sentimental on me, okay? You just <laughs> met the guy two seconds ago. She says, no, you don't. He's Doug Grainer, head of security on the severed floor. Mark says, security? Oh, my God. Mark says he's going to get sick. Says he's going to throw up, and she stops him. Says, says his DNA is in that. His DNA is also on the body, given he's just grabbing it yeah, with I did, his that naked part, hands. That part was a but little... But presumably she's going to clean the corpse, or dispose of the corpse. And, or I suppose not dispose of the corpse. They do find his body, but she clean needs it something, I'm clean sure, it to clean yeah. it. Yeah. A little lie, maybe. A little lie. She, <laughs> takes the, she takes the security card and hands it to Mark. Grainer's security card. Full access. And it can't be tied to anyone. Take it to work tomorrow. It, He'll know what to do. Who you this is this is interesting because this is factoring so perfectly into her plans i almost wondered to what degree she purposely set this up because the any desperately needs that card to implement anything she wants to achieve here and she just so perfectly rolls with this i'm pondering whether all this was intended i have a question how does grainer know that ragabi's there uh grainer knows that ragabi is there he had a contact with the university that that informed him that, well, they analyzed the chip that was in Petey's head, verified it was their own technology in some ways that reverse engineered it and, you know, reintegrated it. Is that the right term again? Yeah. Uh, so he said it had to be Rigabi. Had to be Rigabi, presumably because she's the most recently spurned or left or, you know, angry employee. Um and he had a connection with the university reported to him that the chancellor was isolating off a certain wing for some secret project, whatever else. Now, that's what I remember. Anyway, Am I that's, missing anything that's like? exactly what I remember. Now, how does Ragavi have a lab there? Because uh, she, because she knows the Dean, right? Yes. So my, my two plus two napkin math is that if Ragabi has an in with the Dean such that she's like a wanted woman and he gives her an entire lab to work in, mm. he or she, the Dean, that it's possible that 
some university source could have been a mole to send Grainer there at the right time. I agree with you. Perfectly possible, yes. Also perfectly possible that that could have actually been, you know, a double agent that purposely sent Grainer the information so she could set him up, kill him, and get his badge. I don't know at this point. All I know is that Rigabi is hardcore in a way I wasn't expecting. I, I, if I had to bet on it, I would bet that Rigabi or and or the dean or who, the, 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 their men partnership are the ones that flowed that information to Grainer to set him up. So she asked for Petey's phone. Tells him to go and get rid of his phone, clean up, get rid of your um, clothes. He says, I'll be in touch. It's going to be okay. We'll finish what Petey started, Mark. <clears throat> now get the fuck out of here, she screams. This isn't the fun category of, this is that frustrating moment that happens in almost any form of media of where a character has superior information to us and doesn't share it. However, it's well set up here that there's a reason she's not sharing, she doesn't know him or trust him yet, and B, they just killed someone. She doesn't have time. Hopefully there'll be a follow-up again later where she actually reveals some aspect of the plot. He gets out to the alleyway. And he does throw up. Uh, we get just a few notes of the theme and we Pre- see Mark. Pretty close, pretty close to where they were disposing of the body. Let's see if that comes up later. Then we get the intro. Um, Mark gets home and he's feverishly taking his clothes off, putting them into a kitchen trash bag. He hears something. He's standing in his living room in his underwear. He tries to tie the bag up and put it under the sink. And in comes his date, who is still in the house. Poor woman. Alexa has a tough episode. She asked where he was. You had a car. He does a terrible, terrible job of covering here. She moves up closer and he kind of backs away. He says, you're being weird. He says, maybe it was just a dream. She's like, Mark, I've been up for an hour. Mark, I've been up for an hour and you were not here. Advice to Mark. Never more than 50% lie. Find a way to lie that's grounded in some aspect of truth. He eventually finds a creative way of working it. It takes way too long to get there. But if you start lying more than 50%, the threads start getting apparent too quickly. He says, okay, just, I'm sorry, I, I needed to drive a little. She asked him if he's okay. You notice, like, Mark puts this woman in multiple uncomfortable situations this episode, and she constantly asks him, are you okay? Like, are you going to be all right? And he never gives her an honest answer. He says nothing. He says, well, I mean, this is kind of a big deal for me, and I don't know it's... So he tries to turn it back to their relationship. Yeah, he needs to clear works. his head. He's, he's moving, there's moving so fast. I don't know how to adjust. It's a big, you know, it's a, it's a massive shift for me. That's a, that's a good lie. That fits into her expectation. She, she seems to acknowledge that. She then does the polite human thing and say, oh, okay, um, should I leave? And I Maybe. feel like he answers honestly here in a way that is hurtful, but it is honest. Yeah, he says maybe, and she just gives him a look like, really, dude? And she just walks away and doesn't say anything, presumably leaving. Yeah. Yeah, Mark, uh, like Mark, he's my guy. I have established in this podcast that Mark and I are new best friends now that Petey is dead. However, does not treat Alexa very well. He needs to work on this. This one isn't great. He's still playing catch up. Some very interesting events have occurred outside of his comfort zone today. Sadly, this is not the low point for him and Alexa this episode. No, but I honestly think it's like, it's a great example of, you know, like the excuse for Mark. And it's not, you know, it's, it's an excuse and a reason. It's both. Yeah. Is that he's not ready to date people because he's still mourning his wife. And that is totally reasonable. However, I don't think don't, it's true. <laughs> however, don't try to date Alexa. Like, just yeah. don't do it. Don't, don't bring her into it. And that's like the lesson. If you're not ready, you can do a lot of damage by just about trying to do something you're not ready for. And that seems to be what Mark is doing here. So next morning, Mark uh, is up. Go ahead. It, it, it's a fun question, though, about whether he is or he isn't. If they'd just woken up together and had pancakes, because, of course, you make pancakes for somebody when you wake up in the morning. What, what, what polite person wouldn't do that? How would things have gone? Exactly. I have to imagine they would have gone better. 
Maybe, but you know, we do see him still heavily drinking later this episode, and he's still thinking about his wife. But, and I, I just but, don't. Yeah. But I don't what know. degree is that connected to the fact that he just saw somebody murdered in front of him? Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I, I would, I would still bet that he's probably not ready, and that he's going on dates with Alexa to please his sister. It's definitely outside of his comfort zone, though. I think they connected better than before. Next morning, Mark is up, getting ready for work. He picks up the key card, puts it in his pocket. This Mr. Grainer security key card. Gets him clearance everywhere in the building, puts it in his pocket, walks out of the room. As far as he knows, anyway. Here's something he did that happens a lot in Hollywood productions that I get really frustrated with. He just left the door open. You notice how a lot of actors do this in scenes. Like he was walking outside to put his trash out. Yeah. And he just left the door wide open to his front door. It's just like, just don't, what, can we just, some production assistant somewhere remind these actors to close the effing door? <laughs> Is that in some way connected with like multiple takes that they don't want to have to, you know, go through the process of opening and closing the door because that would be something that they have to do in every take, but if they leave it open, then they can start from a later point. Maybe, but my, my response would be go through the pain of doing it. Like, it, because it looks ridiculous when you just leave the door open. So then we see Miss Selick. It, it's a trusting neighborhood. Only the two of them live there. That's a good point. She greets him. Uh, and he doesn't know that Mrs. Silva's breaking into his house every other day. No, yeah, it might as well be open, I guess. Um, yeah. He says, you usually dispose of your waste in the early afternoon. It's like, hey, how about you stop fucking watching every move I make? I, how much would that put you off if a neighbor said that to you? Oh, you're taking out the trash three hours earlier than normal. It's like, okay. I feel like I just learned something about you and it makes me uncomfortable. Okay, so here's how, we're, here's how me and you are different. Like, if somebody gets in your shit... You do not like it. Like you, in have a a very, you have a very negative reaction to people getting in your business. I don't give a fuck. So if somebody said that, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I do. Whatever. I, I could give two fucks if the person's watching me. I don't care. Every little paranoia dar in my head would just automatically go off. Yeah. Well, you know what? And in this in this situation, you'd be right. Because it's... <laughs> <laughs> I, what, I would survive in this particular show. Glad we've established that. <laughs> insert negative Mad Libs for Mark. And it's worse than that. Whatever he can, he can possibly dream up about Miss Selvig, it's worse. I'm glad we found a show where my inbuilt paranoia is justified. <laughs> yeah, you would be much better suited to this world. Um, she, says, uh, she says he looks troubled and tells him that maybe... They need to chat over some tea soon. He is non-committal, and she says Jack Frost certainly needs some new dandruff shampoo. So okay. she, which she, that puts you off, even you trusting trusting you. What the hell is that line? Uh, I think she's talking about the snow, right? Yes, she is. It's just an incredibly weird way of expressing that. Yeah, yeah. Now that that you make a good point. Somebody being strange like that would put me off more than somebody watching when I take my trash out. It would. Yeah, it, yeah absolutely would. Um, I'll tell you this though. Miss Selvig would be a wonderful professional wrestler because she wonderful professional wrestler. Her ability to switch characters, like I mean, oh, yeah. like this thing that she says, Jack Frost certainly needs some new dandruff shampoo. Miss Coble, not in a million fucking years, would say such a line. It would find it repulsive to say such a like a hackney fucking low key line like that. But yet she can just let it flow, completely believable as Miss Selvig. Let's get her in the WWE. Yeah, she she kind of has two and a half different characters because she's got Mrs. Coble, of course. She's got the Mark Mrs. Selvig, but then the Sel- Mrs. Selvig yes. that she that she has around Mark's sister, different. It, 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 I think it's a, it's a different kind of Miss Selvig there. She is clearly on a fact finding mission with Mark's oh, sister. Hell yeah! Then we see the new doctor, or the, sorry, then we see the new door. Uh, Go ahead. Can we advise Mark, please, for the love of God, start disposing of trash in a different trash can? Take it with you somewhere else. There are trash cans elsewhere you can put things in. 
honestly, I don't think it matters to him. All he's doing is like throwing away like whiskey bottles and like, you know, packaging for TV dinners. Today, he's throwing away bloody clothes. Uh, do you think that's the same bag? Yeah, I think it is. I, I think it explains why he was doing it a different hour, why he looked off when he was doing it. Same category as cell phone in my mind. Mark, drive to a public place, drive to a restaurant or something, okay. put, the tra- put the bag there. Let me explain what just happened. The idea that he would just take those that trash bag full of those clothes and just put it in the front of his house was so foreign to me that I absolutely assumed that he was doing something else with that trash. Like I think now that you've made the case, I think that's what they were portraying. I think you're right. But I just assumed my guy Mark would it's, not be so fucking stupid. What what category of stupid are we assigning here on a 10 point that's scale? That's high. That's eight, eight so or nine. We that's were really bashing high. him on the, we were bashing him on the cell phone, but bloody clothes in your own trash can. Unbelievable. So then we see the new door to macro data refinement. I got to say, looks like a snazzy new door. I like it. Right, and, Mr. And would you do a full milkshake and test this thing like 15 times just to see it go open and close like that? So I would not do it that many times. I th- I feel like there's like a handbook somewhere at Lumen that's like when new door gets put, you have to do seven attempts on each side. And he's he's checking a box on a form somewhere. And, and, and in between every attempt, you have to say which of the nine principles you like most with respect to the door opening right there. Cheer. Like cheer. Uh, cheer, cheer, of course. He tests it both sides a number of times. He then goes into MDR and turns the lights on, goes into the bathroom. He goes to the stall that Dylan referenced, and guess what? Woohoo! He finds a card. Yeah. Can I point out something? Yo. We get to see, we get to see well, one side of this card before. Yeah. Which, as we described, is basically just someone doing what appears to be some aspect of warrior pose in front of another Warrior person. one. Warrior one. Did you notice what was on the back of the card? Please tell us. Fucking lettering! They, it's all been full of shit. All full of shit the entire time. We've been told from the word go that, 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 that the elevators can detect lettering. We've had doubts on that particular subject from the very beginning. You specifically have. The fact that they are now clearly were unable to tell whether lettering had passed through the elevators because they had to remote connect to Dylan to verify he didn't have the card on him further confirms that there are, if presumably in my mind now, no detectors whatsoever other than purely visual with respect to the elevators and with a limited number of employees they have, no one's really watching those either. You may be right. The theme is playing in the background when he finds the card and we see the the lettering, which, you know, connects to... I think it says Lumen or something yeah, else along yeah, the side. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but the theme is playing in the background that happens. Cut to Bert, who's doing some work on a painting. Milchik walks in and greets Bert. Bert is warm and greeting him back. Milchik tells him he has something for him. Bert, oh, the missing 7199G. Oswald <laughs> will be so excited. I, too, am delighted. Milchik says they can now focus on the final preparations. Dum, dum, dum. What does this mean? What? Why, why is this so ominous right now? What are they putting together? I don't know. I don't even know what time it is, because this seems like this is very early in the morning right now. Could be. There is a bit of a tense back and forth. Milchik then looks under the microscope. Milchik tells Bert, you've been a great leader to this department, Bert G. Bert thanks him. Says, you deserve something special. Now, not a trip to the break room, I hope. Yesterday was quite enough. That's a remarkably rebellious little line right there from Bert. That, so he, he got sent to the break resistant. room. Got sent to the break room after introducing MDR to OD. Um, he did get sent to the break room and then he tells Milchik he does not want to go back. So yeah, he, Bert's pretty rebellious. Who did it? Mark was in the break room. We saw his knuckles. 
Are there multiple break rooms? Was Milchik doing both? What's going on here? Well, uh, it could be. And it could be the hours that they work or, yeah, I, I don't know. But there definitely could be more than one break room. Um, Milchik says, no, no, not that. Something else. Stay tuned. Milchik walks out. Cut to Dylan arriving at work. The elevator opens and we, he sees Milchik. I will give the actor who plays Dylan credit. Uh, can you look the guy's name up so we don't get yelled at for just saying the actor who plays? Will do. The guy who plays Dylan, who is also in You, is funny as shit. He's a hilarious guy. And also uh, Succession. He's also in Succession. Uh, he was Roman's BFF in Succession. Zach Cherry. Zach Cherry is wonderful in this episode because he is transformed after seeing the child. He acts different. His facial expressions 100%. are different. Even in moments with just the people that he knows and trusts, his coworkers, he he acts completely transformed and different. I think there's this, this is a fucking Rubicon moment for him. He is he, there's mm-hmm. no going back for him once he figures out that he has a kid on the outside that they will not tell him anything about. Neither you or neither of us have kids, but we've often been told that having a child fundamentally changes you. We've discussed that among, for the innies, they have very little concept of the outside world, very little of value, to the point that, you know, finger traps are among the most prized commodities. Dylan has now learned he has a child, and all of the emotional weight that that represents is now being thrown on him in a heartbeat and then immediately pulled away. This guy's world has been clearly and forever changed in a way that Milchik should have better expected and should have more prepared for what is a straight-up state of rebellion we see hereafter. Milchik made a terrible mistake in waking him up on the outside. Yes. And he, if he's going to wake him up on the outside, he should have got him away from the house so that there is a 0% chance he would see his child. Because he, he, he had to imagine... Control the see, seeing the kid would have would have really done something to him, and it did. And I think that the, what I get from Dylan in this episode is that it does two things. One is what you just referenced. It is like the fast track to that sort of like having a child changes everything. It just happens to him in like seconds. And he has nothing else to compare for value in his life. And two, he's so angry at Milchik for doing something so mean yeah. of showing him that and taking it away from him. That it prompts real serious rage in him. If Milchik had been smarter, he would have started adding incentives associated with the child. He would have given him the name right here. And he would have said, you know what? I understand this is important. We'll discuss more about your son as time goes on. And he could have had a loyal employee going forward. But he fumbles that entirely here and instead looks like the utmost of enemies. Definitely a lesson in management, though. Because like what Cobell is doing is Cobell is going so, like, she is breaking the rules. She's going way outside of her job responsibilities and asking her employees under her to deal with it, cover, not say anything, etc. And what that does is put your middle management, people like Milchik, in a position to take unnecessary risk because mm-hmm. they are trying to do, they're trying to cover for, yep. because this whole thing of Dylan getting the card never would have happened if Coble wasn't so lax about letting the two departments talk I'm and so. running her little experiment. And so then it forces down, there's all these downstream effects to that sort of irresponsible behavior. And Milchik is now having to deal with uh, it. And uh, so he does make a mistake here though. I, don't, I want to point out it's a bit, it's a mistake, but I understand why he makes it. I feel like with our three, you know, non-severed lumen employees that we see on the severed floor, all three are making serious mistakes that are grounded in 
doing things without working, without informing others or working with others or vetting their decisions with others. Uh, has, hasn't blown up in Cobalt's face yet, but I'm expecting it. Grainer's freaking dead. And Milchick, we're seeing his errors just laid out in several different ways this episode. All heavily grounded in, they're operating completely of their own initiative without any degree of oversight. Yep. So when Dylan arrives at work, the elevator door opens. Mr. Milchick sees him, says, Dylan G, good morning. And he goes, what the hell was that? Because you got to remember, yeah. he is the From last one thing, moment to the next. The last second he remembered he was in his closet at home. And then he just boop and he's in the elevator. And he goes, what the hell was that? Milchick says, walk with me. Milchick says, what happened last night was called the overtime contingency. It's a safeguard we occasionally employ to remotely awaken workers off site. Dylan says, Dylan says, they, we never knew they could do that. None of us knew they could do that. That's the surprise. Milchik says it's for emergency use only. And I didn't consult Miss Cobell because she's been so stressed. Mm-hmm. Terrible. T- mm-hmm. Should not have told Dylan that. No, should we should not have told Dylan. He's that. given Dylan ammunition with that one. Dylan asks about the young boy, wants to know if that was his son. Milchik turns around and says he'd agreed to count to a thousand, which he then violated. Milchik, what the hell are you doing? There's so many better ways he could be handling this conversation right now. He's like got real anger toward a six-year-old for, you know, not Again, counting to a thousand. Most unforgivable thing we've seen on the show yet was Milchik yanking the crap out of Dylan's son. He said, D- yep, agreed. Milchik says, I really wouldn't mention this to your colleagues, Dylan. This OTC is pretty neat to know. Understand Dylan just looks at him and says, can you tell me his name? Milchik says, not knowing is probably for the best. Hey, I know this has been a tough quarter. I'm going to see about wrestling you up some special perks. That sound good? Ugh. You, you know what would a great perk right there? Telling him his damn son's name. It's out of the bag. You don't control it anymore. Make it yours. That's the only way he could have saved the situation. And he just wanders away from it and returns to script. So in the 2016 Republican primary, they were doing debates. Where are we going with this? Go on. I'm excited. They, they were doing debates. And and Marco Rubio was a rising star. And he was seen as like maybe the only like con- consensus candidate that might be able to, to beat Trump in the primary. Right. Sure. That's how everybody talked about it. And Marco clearly had some research that he had done about what to say at a debate. And he got there and his the line he was supposed to say is Barack Obama knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's not. He's not making mistakes. Everything's super intentional out of this White House, and it's all terrible, et cetera, et cetera. That was the line he'd researched. That's what he'd been told to say. However, Chris Christie hit him with blunt force trauma in that debate verbally and changed the course of the conversation. But all Rubio could do was go back to that script, and it destroyed him because he wasn't reading the room. I see what Milchik did right here is the exact same thing. His research on Dylan is perks, perks. He likes perks. But what he doesn't understand is that the conversation has now escalated beyond that conversation. And he sounds, when he goes to Dylan and says, I'm going to get you some perks as a response to, can you tell me more about my son? He sounds just as foolish as Rubio did robotically repeating that. Like, oh, uh, you know, uh, he knows exactly what he's doing, exactly what he's doing. Come on, Milchik, you have to read the room. You have to be able to adapt and change. He, he, I'll tell you, he's not winning employee of the episode. Oh, Mr. God, no. Despite his incredible dancing abilities, as we see later, no. No, too many errors, too many unforced errors associated with this. It has What he's responding with here is taking what is now a teenager in terms of level of emotional maturity and treating them like a toddler. And it has the exact same level of value. Yeah, it was... Uh... 
It was a bad look on Milchick's part. He didn't read Dylan correctly. He pays for it later. He looks at Dylan and just says, good man, Dylan, good man, and walks away. It feels like a little bit of attempted at big boy, like, you know, yeah. kind of like, yeah, you'll, you'll be quiet. I know you will. Don't worry. We'll give you a cupcake later. That'll make it all better. Yeah, Dylan is left flabbergasted, and he walks toward his cube, cuts a mark who is at his locker. And he's got the key card. He looks over at security, and he keeps it. And, and it goes down the elevator without issue. Look at that. Yeah, no, nothing in the elevator tricks. Mark is treated by, uh, uh, greeted by Milchik. Mark seems confused to see Milchik, and Milchik says, I'm here to escort you to your desk. New protocol. You lead the way. Mark starts walking. Mark is confused and clearly thinking. Mark is also strongly thinking at this moment he's going back to the break room, which tells us where he ended the day last time. Mark gets in, asks if he's locked in now. Um, no, 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 no. I prefer safely situated. These doors help us to ensure you all are tucked nicely into your workstations. <laughs> Don't they resemble a quilt, Lee? Aren't we just making sure that they're all just snug in their little beds of work? As Milchik opens the door, Mark asks if Grainer ordered it. Mark S. is here. As they both walk in, have a seat. Coffee black, I'll bring it to you. Oh, what a nice guy. Milchik's going to get his coffee for him. All uh-huh. is fixed. The, Ellie greets him. The finest you know, from Rwanda, I think he says later. Yeah. <laughs> Ellie greets him, as the other two do as well. Ellie asks Mark, what is this? Mark greets Irv and said, the renovations are very nice. Mark agrees. Dylan, you all right? Dylan just says, fine. 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 He, and Mark, sensing that something's wrong with Dylan, as everybody has at this point, says, that best you can do? Where's the sly, profanity-laced comeback? And Dylan says absolutely nothing to that. Which should tell Mark everything he needs to know, that Dylan is not in a good place right now. Milchik brings the coffee. Here you go, straight from the hills of Rwanda. Ugh. <laughs> Thank you. I, that makes everything better, is that you have fancy coffee for I, me. Mark smiles. I actually don't know. Is Rwanda coffee any good? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I mean, you you probably. Yeah, you you've. They produce so much darn coffee that you've probably had, seen, been around Rwandan coffee a lot. Um, the only like bean variety that I've ever had that I felt was significantly different was the the coffee from Ethiopia, which is really acidic, hmm. really I, acidic. You've coffee. mentioned that before, yeah. Um, cut to Milchik leaving the floor. Hey, it's me. But don't know if you heard, Grainer didn't come in. Everything's uh-huh. fine, but I'm just wondering where you are. I get the sense that Milchik is calling Koble here. Again, we the more we learn, the more we realize that these guys are basically a three-person team, and that is it. They have no other resources. There's no fallback plan. It's just the three of them. One of them's dead, and one of them's late for work and unanswering calls. Cut to Miss Selvig, and she's working on helping Mark's sister. Devon with latching. Show the baby the areola and we latch. I gotta say, the fact that she has someone helping her with this, I mean, it seems standard. It seems like something that Very people, people have, deal with. Uh, shout out to Miss Selvig for doing this. Seems like she does help. She but really get, knows what she's doing. We always, but we do get one line per episode where you go, oh, did they have to phrase it that way? Oh, what, did they, did they, what, did they have to? What's the line here? Please tell me. I just told you, show the baby the areola. Oh, and sure. Yeah. She said it because <laughs> she says it twice and it looks like Devin gets a little like, eh, did mm. you have to say it that way? Uh, but the baby does latch. So well, good news well, for, one, for Devin. My favorite moments of the episode, bar none, which just is an example of how uh, Miss Coble, Miss Selvig, Harmony, whatever you want to call her. She has various roles, but her level of commitment to them is inconsistent. Of when she gives this yes. little speech 
to Devon about, you know, Harper Latch on the areola. Did I say areola? They say it again, areola. Um, She then, once she shows this, she just chucks the doll. Just straight chucks the doll across the room. If you were Devon, wouldn't that just set you off of, well, that's an interesting way of of treating the the baby uh, symbiote. You know, honestly, I I got the impression. Honestly, I got the impression that Devin is so. She's she really wants the baby to latch so much that she's willing. She's yeah, she's willing to put up with some strangeness, and that's what she's putting up with. Somebody being pretty strange. Man, I think that would still set me off there. But again, I'm the paranoid guy who's just seeing how well I'd work in this universe. But cut to Selvig and Devin, uh, who are laughing up in the kitchen because Devin's Mm. obviously in a much much better. Mood now that this has happened. This is Selvig 2.5 I was talking about. This is not the Selvig that Mark sees as much. No, and I, I don't, you know, I think that like, I so this is going to, so sit back. I want you to like, make sure you're sitting when you hear this. Here. I can be a bit of a people pleaser. <laughs> you. And uh, I recognize what Miss Selvig is doing here. This is, I'm, I am going to. I'm going to be a chameleon in this situation to what this person wants and, and kind of requires in order for me to be friendly with them in this moment. Now she's doing it for nefarious purposes. I think she's trying to get information about Mark, but this happens with people pleasers all the time where it's like, Oh, I got it. You're, you're super extroverted sports lover guy. Okay. We can, we can sit here and argue about the NBA. Oh, you were introverted loves to read like, fantasy literature yeah i will uh, we can have some pregnant pauses in the conversation i don't need to overwhelm you this is one of those fun moments of just two people having a similar reaction to situations but for completely different reasons of you're doing it to help the other people to you know fit into the conversation to make things less awkward i'm doing it to desperately blend in because i already feel awkward but i'm doing the exact same thing it's like oh you're interested in that i'll represent that i am just so i can make this less awkward and i can have somebody to talk to which your effect is everybody feels more comfortable in the room. My effect is I have to then pull out a list to just process what the fuck I said over the course of the conversation at the end of the day. You got a lot to keep track of for sure. Damn. <laughs> I've seen you do it. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm not an unpleasant person, but this is my way of coping with being in social situations. And it is exhausting. It doesn't add to just the natural introvert tiredness that sets in. I also want to point out, similar to I'm not a bad person, when you have to say I'm not an unpleasant person. Same category. 100%. You got yourself in an interesting when, situation. When, when you just represented that you were basically going through all conversations by just pretending to, you know, to fit in like a vague human, you got to kind of, you know, defend your own ego at a certain point there. Oh, let's print the pre. Can we please print the t shirts? Mangum Talk, Spencer, vague human. Let's I, I do know. it. It's taken me a long time, but I know what I am. Oh, this, this is why Mrs. Casey and I, I sympathize with her so much. But like, you know, the, one thing that I do think you're good at, and I'll give you, I'll give you a compliment here, is that you are pretty good at sniffing out bullshit in people. And I'm a little upset at Devin that she doesn't sniff out the bullshit here in Selfie. Yeah. Like I, the fact that she's so snowed here and that she starts gabbing about Mark, I was really disappointed in the character because that's exactly what happens. She's clearly in a good mood because the baby lashes and she's relieved about that. But then they start talking and Selwig is really playing to her, right? She's telling jokes. Um she gets a call from work. She says, oh they could they could 
deal without me. I'm having fun. Seven sits down. Devin sits down and explains that she met a rich woman at a retreat. I guess her husband's a state senator. So you were right about that state senator and says, I know, but it was weird because I saw her at the park a few days later and she 100% didn't remember me. Selvig either what not caught up. Newt. Clever on yeah. Selvig's part to go in that direction. Yeah, because it seems like it makes her seem like she's not caught up. Yeah. Right? That she doesn't understand what she's getting at. And Devin says that, but that then forces Devin to make the point, right? Because that's what she wants to talk about. And goes, yeah. Mark's company, Lumen, they say they only sever people for work. But I was thinking, what if someone like, what if you wanted a baby, but you didn't want to? I don't know. Now, what she didn't, what she left out is that she's done a boatload of research on Mark, keyboard warrior research on Mark, uh, on um, the, the, the lady and her wife. And the, yeah. The, yeah. And that they are big severance proponents, right? So oh, that yeah. helped, that's helping her connect the dots. Selvig just looks at her and says, well, I don't think I'd remember even Clark Gable if I'd just given birth. But I don't know if you caught this. But I caught a a change in her body language when the idea of severance and lumen came up in that conversation. Yeah, she tries to cover it with a little Clark Gable joke, but her posture changes, the general mannerisms of her face change. Again, as as you said previously, Devin's still in the glow that she's able to get the baby to latch. This is everything she's been nervous about, everything she's been hoping for. All the little details are kind of, you know, covered in cheesecloth. But the signs are there that, oh... This woman's acting weirder now that I mentioned severance. Yeah. And it's like what's happening to Selvig is that she's doing this people pleasing thing. Yes. And then Devin is like bumping right up against her zealot, Nate, like her, her zealotry, right? 100%. By questioning Lumen, questioning the severance. You know, this be like, it's like if you were in a conversation, you were doing the people pleasing thing that you just talked about, right? That yeah, yeah. We're both do, right? And then, you know, you get like someone like, if only George Lucas had made Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and, and, and Episode Nine first, and we never got four, five, and six, Star Wars really would be dope. Like that would really be the most wonderful. Yeah, you know, you see how it runs up against you. Get, get away from me, Satan! What have you done? You would have a hard time continuing in the people pleasing mode. I think that Selvig has a hard time continuing with her role here because. Devin is just basically implicated. Like, I don't, I don't like, I don't trust this company. And we know that she's a cure zealot. So yeah. Devin takes a, a sip and seems to think. Selvig says, severed? Why do you think Mark did it? So here we go. Fish, hook, line. It's, it's out. It's out in, the, out in the pond. This is why she was here. This is what she wanted the information on. This is what she's interested in exploring to a degree that I did not fully understand at this given moment. But man, do we get a line here that I mean, it's going to resonate with me later. Well, it was right after he lost his wife. At first, he tried to keep teaching at the college, but he couldn't. And now, I don't know what couldn't means. It could mean a lot of different things. Selvig says, does he ever talk about her? Not as much as I'd wish. Selvig says, when my husband passed, I thought I saw him everywhere. It was just so hard. Does Mark ever think he sees her? (laughs) Good God, does this line hit harder after the end of the episode. Yeah, in the moment, it seems like a strange detail. And I actually wrote down because when I was doing my notes, I had I had f- forgotten that the reveal of that was the end of this episode. I had it mixed up in my head. I thought it was episode eight. So I wasn't thinking that we would get that reveal this episode. And I wrote down that I thought that was a, a strange detail, but a perfect one, because it does sound like the type of thing someone who also lost someone would ask. It, it, That's yeah. sort of like really strange. Like, you know, like my uh, 
my dad one time who had just lost his dad and he was talking mm-hmm. to somebody else who'd lost someone. And he asked a very specific question about how often that person put flowers on the grave of the person that they, they had lost. And I thought to myself, like, that's only a question a person who had lost someone who's really in this would ask. It's, it's that level of detail. So I thought it was a great cover. It's fascinating to mention that I hadn't thought about this in years. One of the most memorable conversations I ever had with my dad was that first conversation I had with him after his dad died. That, you, you, the most interesting little philosophical pieces are just little odd perspectives on the universe come out of people in those, in those, those particular moments. Yeah, and it's like, oh, it's almost like you're speaking a uh, like a coded language. Like, yeah. Oh, this little weird detail really validates. I'm talking to somebody who has gr- been through the grieving process, and I felt like that's what this was. So Devin stays, but De- but Devin stays kind of quiet. Devin De- Devin doesn't seem. She's not processing that way. She just interprets it as that's a weird thing to say. She seems like that's the line that finally just got her hackles up a little bit. She doesn't engage, and she almost looks like she pulls away a little bit. See, I didn't know. I, I felt like. You you 100% could be right, but I felt like the cutaway was so fast I didn't really know what her reaction was. Like sure. Because I, I, I felt like it could have been that, and that maybe that's what the cutaway is trying to say, or it could just be they continue talking and, and whatever. Yeah. And, what, and what we learned at the end of this episode is, dear God, has Coble had a long-term plan that we didn't fully understand in terms of vetting the severance procedure. Cut to Dylan doing work, and he's struggling, it seems. Irving greets Mark. I was just in the bathroom. What happened to the soap labels? Shouldn't there be labels on the soap dispenser? Mark says they've never had them. Dylan, not looking up, irritated, says, we all know it's soap. Irving, seems like an O&D question. <laughs> Mark just says, Irv, Clever Irving. Irv, you know we can't go anywhere. I, I get that you're worried about Bert. And he suppose he's being disciplined for our visits, which he did. He was. And he was. maybe even more to come. Dylan who I am going to categorize now as not himself, and he gets a 100% pass on this in my book and my book only, says, suppose he is thanks to you. If only someone had told you there was going to be a shitty, that was going to be a shitty shitty fucking idea from the jump. So he kind of snaps at him and says, suppose he is thanks to you, and it was a bad idea, and I told you. This is so out of character. Even I, vague human that I am, would immediately go, Dylan, what's up, man? Yeah, you good. Yeah, you, it's a lot of you good. And that's what Helly and Mark are both doing. They're both cocking their head like, a, oh man, something's D- wrong with him. Dylan, not okay. Milchik comes in because yet again, Milchik is left to his own devices and he's having to improvise. He's having to operate in that that corporate area of gray, that risk area. He's going to have to make risk calculations in his job. And you know what he decided to do? It's time for MDE. Music. Dance experience. Why wasn't this listed in the various incentives and perks previously? He says it's because she got the 75%. Uh, but, but, but Mr. Lee, Mr. Lee, she's only at 73%. Uh, yes, well, I, I think we've all had a tough morning and a little frivolity may be just what the doctor ordered. Uh, which I love that Helly emphasizes, we? What, what, why has it been a tough morning for you? Yeah, Helly always asks good questions. She always does. Laser focus on Helly. Yeah. So Milchik tells her to approach the MDE cart. You may pick a genre and one accessory. Dylan isn't engaging at all. Looks very angry. So here are the Lumen music dance experiences. Are you ready to hear the entire list and pick one yourself? God, yes. I'm, pull- body, I'm also pulling up a list too. Go on. Body, body funk, bouncy swing, buoyant reggae, defiant jazz, effusive ska, Exalted choral, exciting rap, hootin' tootin' country, lofty orchestral, 
Maximized rhythms, playful punk, reckless disco, spooky ambient, tearful emo, thoughtful grunge, wholesome big band, wistful pipes. I'm an even mix between bouncy swing, buoyant, um, defiant jazz, or lofty orchestral, depending on my particular mood at that day at work. Yeah, definitely doing thoughtful grunge on my part. Absolutely going thoughtful grunge. Would they actually play Nirvana? Do you hope? Do you hope for that? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, but but you know when you say grunge, it's a it's a pretty small pool of people that you're gonna, you're pulling from. So it's gonna be like some type of violence there was, or Pearl There Jam was or a period. She grabs a maraca, and she chooses because she's Helly. Defiant. Because she's fucking Helly, she picks Defiant Jazz. Of course she does. Just because of the word Defiant there? I think so, yeah. yeah. Milchik says that while this is in Helly's honor, he encourages all refiners to take advantage of this situation. Mark starts dancing, so does Helly. She's dancing with Milchik, and she does seem to be enjoying it. Um, you, this is probably the loosest we've ever seen her as an innie. I think the actress plays this very well. She goes through the process of, this is stupid, this is stupid, oh, why fuck am I having fun, this is stupid. <laughs> Because they all seem to actually get into it. It is an effective little perk. Everyone's kind of, you know, on script, is enjoying this right now. They never get to hear music. They don't have iPods at their fucking desk. They don't have Internet Explorer or Mozilla. Silence with little idle employee chatter. They can't listen to music. This is the only chance they ever get to listen to music. This is like kind of an epic perk. And and also, Milchik, man, that guy can cut a rug. He can fucking dance. I'll tell you what he can't do. Operate in, the gray, operate in the gray, make risk calculations on his own, be inventive, be uh, be sort of spontaneous. That's that's not in the job description for Milchik. However, fucking dance around a room, crushing it, kills it, does it very well. 100%. Until he take just don't do this. The one person in the room that's sitting alone, fine. Dance them a little bit, see if they respond to it. See if they smile to any degree. If they stay laser-focused staring anywhere but you, go anywhere else in that room for their sake and yours. We've, we've talked a lot about Lumen's overconfidence. And I think <laughs> this was Milchik being overconfident in his ability to impact the emotional state of the innies. I think he felt like he could pull Dylan out of it. And it was just way overconfident. It, it was overconfident to the point that, like Dylan, it comes across almost as taunting. Yeah, it, it did. It, it, I felt like he was taunting him. Yeah, it felt very much a certain element of, I can do this and there's nothing you can do about it. Welcome welcome to the world. It veered almost into bully. Yeah, it did. Uh, and I don't know to what degree that was intentional or not. It's hard to tell with someone that's so just died in the wool believer that Milchik is, whether any action is intentional or not. But Dylan was perfectly justified in thinking such. But let's now discuss Dylan's reaction. Well, Milchik's dancing all around. And finally, Dylan... Has enough, and we see in what he's thinking about, and it's the cuts to the child saying, Daddy, cuts to the child saying, Daddy. He gets up, he throws Milchik on the ground, uh, knocking the cart over in the process, and yells, what's his name? Tell me his name. Milchik says, "Um, Dylan, get him off me. So now he's yelling at the other refiners for help. Dylan struggles on top of Milchik as Milchik screams for people to get Dylan off of him. Dylan then bites Milchik in the arm. A little Mike Tyson situation just goes yeah. right to the biting. I like that. When you continually referred to Dylan as the attack dog of the group, I did not understand how literal you were going to be with this. We've had clues. Remember when he just whipped that stapler out and he was ready to go? Yeah, there, We've I, had clues. Can we agree there was a line between using a physical weapon like a stapler, you know, opportune office implement that that is, to straight up biting another person? I feel like there's a jump still. It's a jump, but it's same spectrum. I mean, I, this is the guy. This is the guy you want in the fight for sure, because he'll throw down. He will. Th- he is clearly scrappy. He is clearly willing to bite. 
it also comes across almost it adds to the element of that these guys are is referred to by um oh i'm already breaking out her name who is the rogue lumen employee um heli uh ragabi 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 okay ragabi referring to them as toddlers that, it's almost like a toddler response to a fight. It's just straight up biting another person like this and giving them a moment. He doesn't know what else to do. He's just angry and his teeth are an implement. I don't know, man. If you're fighting somebody for real, you might bite them. Like, I mean, if you, I mean, you know, if you're in a real scrap, like, I mean, you do whatever you can. You pull, you yank, you bite, you spit, you, you, you know, you grab. I mean, you do whatever. But, As you say, Dylan's the guy you want in that particular scrum. And I'll say this, that like, it is clear to me that the refiners are real friends. That... Mark, Helly, and Irving are Dylan's real friends. Here's how I know. Because I've had this happen before. Your buddy jumps on somebody and just mm-hmm. starts beating the fuck out of somebody. Like really, obviously winning the fight and beating someone up. If a strange things happen, at least in my experience, is that you do want to pull your friend off, but not till they get a few good licks in, right? Because you know, you, you, you're still <laughs> you're picking your mouth for your buddy. Yeah, so they yeah. wait till he does some damage on Milchik before they pull him off. That's a friend move, Just, right there. Wait, 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 wait till it's no longer feels good to him. Once he's clearly, you know, it's got he's gotten out of the moment. He's looking for lesson. someone to intervene. Then you help him leave the moment. You got to make sure that he wins the fight before we stop the fight. Yeah. So uh, make Irving sure he's says, breathing. Make sure, make sure he's pulp. Milchik is really upset and, and is very upset that um, he broke the skin. He actually says that. He just looks at Dylan and says, he broke the skin. Irving says, I mean, he needs he's a bleeding. Full, he needs a full tetanus toxoid panel. Now, this is the line I want to talk about because I have talked, and this is my my little like sidebar that you've you've just sort of listened to, but you haven't really engaged what, in too much. What information I, is in? What information is out? Exactly. Yeah. When does it split? How, wh- wh- how much information? Why is that in? How much exactly like so I think it tells us something about his background because I we've established through many different little details that the split couldn't have been that long ago before they split the memories and basically clouded everything future facing. Let's say it's two years, three years, something like that. So if it is something that short amount of time, then the knowledge that they come in with is like this Easter egg of a background of, of their background. And I think that we got some information here about Irving. Like, how does he fucking know what a full tet- tetanus toxoid panel is? I mean, most people would say a tetanus shot. Yeah. Or let's just say that he, need, he needs an antibiotic. He needs to go to a doctor right away. That's a pretty specific way of referring to this thing. <laughs> Same thing with Dylan earlier in the episode when he said this phrase from the jump. Mm-hmm. From the jump is a very specific way of speaking. Like I think that's a, a clue to his background of like where he grew up and the people he associated with, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're learning about these people. I agree. I think we're also learning something about Miltrick here in terms of how he reacts in this moment. Miltrick comes up and says, "You've done it now, Dylan. I'm reporting this to Miss Coble." And in an all-time comeback, oh. Dylan says, "Yeah, you want to go see her together?" Look at this, Milchick. You fucked up. You gave somebody something on you that he can use whenever he wants. And Milchik is not used to the innies actually checking yep. him he, and actually getting one on him. And, and Dylan did right there. Milchik has all of the, you know, he has all of the bearing now of a bully that's never been challenged before. Yeah. He's not used to the idea that his, pre, the, his little children that he's been running, the little toddlers that have, of his daycare can actually bite back. And he just... He almost acts just that little petty, offended little flare as he walks out of the room. The music dance experience is officially canceled. With, with and Milchik storms out. With the little flourish he does when he does the card. It's like, 
oh, let me express how angry I am as I you know, whip this card out of the socket. Notice the image we see when he leaves. It's Dylan, but all three co-workers are holding or touching him in some way. It's an image of support. Family. Yep, it's an image of support. I think that like the first 15 minutes of this show or this episode is telling us that like whatever ends up happening with these four, they are tight. Like ride they or are, die. They are the, yeah, ride or die. Yeah, that's a great way to explain it. I, I like that. Um, so after Milchik leaves, Mark asks Dylan, what is up with you? Dylan says, just jumps right to it. They can wake us up. <laughs> yeah. On Ooh. the outside, it's called the overtime contingency. They're all confused. Dylan goes on. Last night, after I went up the elevator, I woke up outside, inside my house with Milchik. Irving's like, what? And Dylan says, with a lot of emotion, I saw my son. Irving and Mark look taken aback. Cut to Dylan, still explaining. This time in the supply closet, so they've moved. And he explains that the kid hugged him. He was so happy to see me. Then Milchik pulled him off and it was over. It happened so fast. I just keep trying to remember more. That's super fucking it's sad. It's tragic. I mean, we kind of thought, oh, he's going to have a different perspective on what his Audi does and what life is. I hadn't really, and I should have, assigned the weight to this in terms of how much this affects him. In a world of where his other, his other comparison of value was fucking finger traps. The fact he has a kid that exists in the world that loves him, that cares... That's God in terms of level of importance on this guy when he has nothing else to turn to. This is an unbelievably bad miscalculation by Milchik that he did not see that this would affect him that way. Mark says it's crazy. And Dylan, who I just think is fucking... Here's the thing. He can be like tad and reasonable at times. I think he's just fucking bright because he says this. Yeah, it's not fair. Like his read on the situation, in my opinion, is like perfectly accurate. It's like, yeah... It's a big deal that I just learned I have a kid. I'm going to miss him. I'm going to think about him, et cetera, et cetera. But also, like, fuck Milchik for doing that to me because this is an absolutely unfair position he's put me in, and I couldn't agree more. It, it's one. It just shows, again, how much the severance procedure depends upon control, complete isolation from any degree of outside stimulus. Because now that something like this is in there, the is, experiment is ruined. There's yeah. no way you walk this back without a clean mind, without a clean mind sweep. And now I'm just supposed to have that in my head every day here. Yep. And I never get to see him again. Irving goes this route, which I don't blame Irving for going this route, but I Coping. think they need I think they need to talk it out, right? Yeah. Irving goes, Well, he's not your son, Dylan. He's your Audi son. Dylan says, That is bullshit. He's my son too. He hugged me. This didn't is hug, good. D- didn't hug my Audi right then. He hugged me. Exactly. I and I know like I I am the person who made him. Like, yeah. you know, he can't get that out of his head. Helly who is often left field goes, this is good. And they're like, what? And she goes, we can use this. If they can wake us up on the outside, what's to stop us from doing it ourselves? Helly is a one track mind. Man, does she hone in on these details quickly? Helly wants the fuck out of there. And every single conversation and, they have. It, yeah. And, and just burn it, burn it down. Yeah. Wants to burn it down. And if she has the opportunity to do a full grand theft, you with respect to her Audi, that is a, that is a dream that she did not think was possible. Oh, that's right. Because what she, I, damn it, Spencer, I haven't even thought of this. If she gets wake, if she could wake herself up on the outside and destroy the switch, she could kill her Audi. Potentially. She could just take over this complete, you know, switching of identities attached with this. I Would wonder if she's be- thinking about that right now in this conversation. I wonder if that 100%. was part of her mind. <laughs> It, isn't that just the ultimate final revenge? It's just like, oh, yeah, I'll you, kill you. you Literally, she's down, killing the Audi. Stuck you down there. Not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to end you and keep me. 
Mark says, what's to stop us? Heli suggests they find whatever they use to control it and commandeer it. Irvin looks very concerned. Heli says they can use it to trigger their innies to the outside to see who we are out there. Irving, but Heli, forgive me, but that's perverse. We're innies. Plus, perverse. plus the controls are surely somewhere we can't access. Mark says, like the security office? As he goes in his pocket. <laughs> Irving and Dylan immediately know what it is. Dylan says, is that Grainer's key card? Heli, ask him. Where he found it, Mark answers honestly, in my pocket, during the music dance experience, I must have had it with me when I came in today. Okay. Heli asks a question here. Why does your Audi have the key card of our head of security? Mark says he doesn't know. I, question to ask for you, sir. You're in Mark's position. Heli asks you that question. What is your default assumption for why your Audi gave you that key card? Or had the key card? I would have to think that that was a, a message from my Audi of sympathy. Yes. Of support, of telling me that whatever, however this situation, however we came to arrive here at this moment right now, my Audi is with me and he, and he, and he wants me to fight back. If we're doing two ends of the spectrum, there is now from, if I was in that position, I would view Heli's Audi on one end and my Audi on the other. Yes. That's a, that's a wonderful way to put it. We're completely different than the message that Heli got. Absolutely. Is that how else do you interpret that? It's not accidental. How could it be accidental? And the fact that it was passed down to me, how could you perceive that as anything other than a boon that is being offered to your benefit for a purpose I may not fully understand, but is clearly one of support? Mm -hmm. Heli says, I think it's time for a field trip to the security office yeah. where all of, and then pa Dylan says, to the security walk. office where all the security guards work? Amazing. Yeah. Heli says, who's to say there are security guards? I've only ever seen Grainer. Good point. What about Milchik? He can't be everywhere at once. Irvin is struggling with this this whole line of, do you know where the office is? Heli says to Mark. Mark says, PD saw it during a fire alarm last year. He showed me. Mark looks at Dylan and others and says, we can do this. They walk out of the storage closet, dramatic music playing, power walk. It is just great. I love the process they're going through with respect to this. And again, Dylan is our friend that is willing to fight for the cause that you believe in. I love they leave him behind to distract Milchik. My headcanon was, well, he's just going to bite him again. He's just going to latch onto him and just leave him pinned there. I think what we get post him seeing his kid is that now Dylan is the whatever the fucking plan is. I'm in. Find the hardest role and I'll take it because yeah. I am that committed to get to, to, at a bare minimum, paying back Milchik for the pain he's just put upon me. Because he, he as he's communicated this. He views this as fundamentally unfair torture, right? Mm -hmm. And it is. It's it, he is torturing this guy now. He's got to sit there and think about the fact he has a kid. He can't get any answers. Nobody will ever talk to him. And by the way, can't even sleep. Can't 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 turn his brain off for a second. Uh, we, we talked about what a great you know employee he, he was previously. Now he's just the essential team member. I feel like every team relies on that guy that doesn't want to be in charge. Just wants to implement the plan and has all the confidence, and all of the determination to make that happen. Yeah, and that is Dylan right here. That's the guy that makes the plan work. Yeah, he's absolutely the implementer going forward. So they, they're power walking. And look, if Milchik does show up, Mark says, Dylan says, stall him, I got it. So they, anyway, they're power walking. Mark is over the door and inserts the security card. Voila, it does open. No cavalry yet. Irving takes off. I'm sorry, Mark. I have to go make sure, but it's okay. I didn't expect that, but I should have. He has a... Irving has his purpose and he's seizing the opportunity. Yeah, he's really worried about Bert. Mark, whisper back to him. Fairly. Kind of, he like whisper yells back to him. What about the plan? Irving says, I'm sorry, Mark, I can't hear you. I'll be back. 
Mark and Ellie take off. We get shots of them walking through the hallways. It's this one. They go to a door. Mark opens it with his key card. Voila. They go into the security room. It's big, empty. Big room. A lot of screens. Not a soul in there. Completely fucking empty. But seemingly keeping track of every single employee. Not, walks not, not even just the severed employees. They seem to be keeping track of people like Kobol, too. She walks over to a wall that has people's names on it. First, last initial, and a little red and green light. With one of them being on red or green at any given moment. Now, what did you think that meant? It, did, did green mean you're in the facility or did green mean you're at one side of the severed spectrum? Like you're I, in or your Audi is flipped. I interpret green as being uh, you are severed at that particular moment. That's the way I read it. But it also could just be you are you are at work that day. Yeah, I didn't. I, they, that, they, would be the, two. they would be the same thing. Yeah, those are the two. Well, it would just, I, I didn't see kobolds and i didn't know if kobolds line we, we only it, seemingly yeah. saw people that were severed have the lights we saw yeah. that's a little indicator that they so were, i think kobold was there right so i think so if that's the case because that's what i saw too if we move forward with that assumption then then it is a indicator of which side of the are they on or off if they're they severed yeah. or not at that moment which would fit and it just happens to be in this particular case that you know it would be the same because they're severed employees they would only be severed at least they only should be when they're at work how many names do we think there are? Because I, I did a little math. It looks like there are 14 names per row or column, and there are six columns. So 84 total severed people in the building? It's notable that, yeah, I think I think that's a rough, that's a rough approximation. It's notable in my mind that the first department that we recognize is Macrodata, and there, and there are four people that are there. Previously, we see a lot of substantially larger departments than we've seen previously, even larger than O&D, with labels that I did not recognize. Mark starts looking around. He asks again what the thing was, and Mark confirms it's the overtime. She asks again what the thing was, and Mark mm. confirms it's the overtime contingency. They look down at a laptop monitor. Helly finds a security protocols book and opens it. Then we see Coble descending on the monitor. Indeed. And we see Koble in the elevator on one of the security monitors. Helly says Koble won't go down there. Um, like basically, she's not going to come here. Profound, she she's not, profound yeah. assumption on Helly's part, I must say. Yeah, she's not coming to the security area, right? How but do you know course, that, Helly? Yeah, Mark says, it's good that you know that. Let's get the fuck out of here. Helly tears the sheet, taking it with her. Uh, luckily for them, we have Harmony. We have not Harmony, uh, Natalie to intervene here. We see Irvin walking. We see Koble walking. And I was hella worried they'd run into each other, but they I, did not. I thought that's what they were setting up. Yeah, 100%. But we do see the board representative, Natalie, who tries to get Koble's attention. At first, Koble tries to brush her off, but she says, I have the board here, which stops Koble in her tracks. Now, Spencer, do we now think the board is real? Yeah, I think the board's real now. I, uh, yeah, I, you I, immediately, th and I don't blame you for, with, with the information you had at the time, you thought that it was fake, but I... I'm pretty sure the board is real. I hopefully the next episode will confirm such when we get to meet them in person. But yeah, the level of bearing that's attached to I have the board here and how much how much she's regard relying on her earpiece for communication. My doubts have been diminished. I'm pretty sure the board's real. She explains Doug Grainer is dead. What the board finds this deeply troubling. They want to know if you knew he was missing and if you've spoken to the police. Notice this is the first question they have. That's an interesting did you, start. Do you know he was missing? And have you spoken to the police? So screams to me, we want to keep this in house. Control. We want to keep this tight. It, it's interesting that 
Later on, we see Mark browsing the newspaper. And Mr. Grainer's body does not appear at any point in terms of the local news, even the college news, which, dear God, would that be the top, you know, front page news in a heartbeat for any local you college? Would, you would, I think that was the purpose behind showing us Mark scrolling the news, is to 100%. show us that it wasn't on the news. So Lumen's aware, but Lumen has in some manner either kept that knowledge hidden or fully suppressed that news from, getting, from, from reaching broader channels, which is notable in terms of their level of local control. Coble still talking to Natalie and the board via Natalie. Says whoever killed Mr. Grainer is probably the same person who reintegrated Peter Kilmer. The board reminds Accurate. you that reintegration happened. Shut up. Barking. And I have the data to prove it. Leans into the receiver. So leaning up to the little microphone that she's got um, up near her mouth. And I would be happy to share my findings in person without intermediaries. She's playing her card. She's playing her card. And I think it's going to blow up in her face. The intermediary she's talking about listens and seems very concerned with how close Koble is to her and says, the board agrees and will be available to meet with you at the Egan family gala next week to discuss this further details to come. To add to the creepiness, Mrs. Koble just kind of like leans in even further to the point that Natalie suddenly appearing far more human is like trying to flinch back while still staying still. And Koble just says, I look forward to receiving them. Uh, I, I like that little edge that Natalie is actually human. I commented previously that she came across as being a weird facade of a person. But now in confronted with the weirdness of Mrs. Coble, she is straight up flinching and seems like she like has a very human gesture of sighing when Coble walks away. Coble seems happy? Coble uh, seems smug. We see Irvin walking around. He gets to O&D. And guess what they're having, Spencer? Uh, having a fruit party, it appears. Melon party! And what is it for, Lee? What are they what's celebrating? Your, what's your favorite melon? Favorite melon? A really good cantaloupe. Like a, a, a cantaloupe can go bad in a freaking heartbeat. You can have really bad cantaloupe, but good cantaloupe, top form. Yeah, I can't. I can't get away from watermelon. I cannot quit watermelon. I've had. I've had honeydew. I've had cantaloupe. I've had fancy melons. I have in my day. I've had the fancy melons. Cannot quit the watermelon. Love it. I've had bad luck with watermelon. Like watermelon can be. Watermelon can surprisingly be a time bomb sitting on your counter because when a watermelon decides it's gone bad, it can just explode into a water bomb on your counter. And I've gone through that recently, and I shall not forgive it. Always cut your watermelon. You get it home. Put it in the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. So they all seem to be talking and having a good time. What they are celebrating, to your question, before I decide, sidebarred us with the melon discussion, is Bert's retirement. Tell me, sir, I ask you for your theories because I have my own. Is this a forced retirement? Was Milchik hinting at this earlier? Is this the punishment or the clearing of the slate associated with this? Yes. Straight there with you. That's what I think. I don't, I don't, know. I don't know, but that would be my guess is that they, they, went, to Bert's, they went to Bert's Audi. Because I don't think Bert is the hundred. We I think one thing I had wrong is that Bert stays there all the time. I think there is an Audi because we see the Audi. He he works odder hours because he was there for early. But yes, he clearly has an Audi. He clearly leaves at some point in the day. And they went to the Audi and they said basically we no longer need your services. We need yeah. you to record this thing and we're we're gonna we're gonna stop this arrangement. We're, we're, we're gonna give you a nice severance package. Got a good severance package. I'm sure of it. Cut back to Dylan who says so. No one is in there. That's lax as fuck. Mark says well maybe it's enough that we think we're constantly being watched Which maybe it's enough maybe it's enough that we think we're constantly being watched it's all you need it's, it's it's the old thing about security all you really need is a camera set up that you know puts people under the fear that the camera's watching them 
Their behavior will change as a result. And that's the theory Lumen's working under. Don't invest the resources. Just invest the necessary image of security. I think that is an absolutely fan-fucking-tastic point by Mark. Helly says, it's too bad nobody told you guys that everything here is bullshit. <laughs> Thank you, Helly. Please be smug more. We appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Mark says, is that making sense? Talking about the page that she had ripped out. And she says, yeah, there's a bunch of steps, but it's actually pretty straightforward. You just engage the trackball, type the code, then it's switch, type, flip, type, hold. Got it, Spencer? No, I don't. I'm not Dylan. Okay. Well, Dylan's got it. Trackball, type, switch, type, flip, type, hold. Boom. What? I'm smart. So I have three times as many finger traps as you guys. I love you, Dylan. I love you so much. Mark takes the page. But to do this, one of us has to stay behind, right? Dylan goes, yeah, after work, I can do it. I've already been out, so it's fair. Woo. What do you think about Dylan? Let's unpack that a little bit. Why did Dylan volunteer so quickly to do this? Which is a dangerous mission for them, for sure. And he he agrees to stay behind. He does it. He, he, you would, it, it, it surprised me, right? Because like... I, at least initially it surprised me before I thought more about it because I thought, wouldn't he be clamoring to get out to go see his kid, right? Isn't that the, the whole point? I think it's a certain element of, A, he thinks that he can do it better than anybody, and he's, as you said, so desperate to burn down this entire world that he feels like he's a necessary part of making that happen internally. Point number B, there also may be a certain element of, it is so painful to him that he no longer has that, that it had so brief, that just getting a little other taste of it, he may be to a certain degree viewing that as painful too. That it almost may be a certain element of taunting that, oh, I'll have another 30 seconds, what a world to enjoy that. Trackball type, switch type, flip type, hold. Trackball type, switch type, flip type, hold. Got it. It appears to be that this is a rather complicated information just in terms of, you know, it's a two-man operation internally, which raises questions in my mind. Who was Milchick talking on the phone? It wasn't Mrs. Coble. It wasn't Grainer. Who was he having that was assisting him back in that room when he was activating, you know, the uh, overtime contingency at that particular moment? Not, clearly not so, either, clearly not a non-severed limit employee that we've met, which raises questions of, who else he recruited for that purpose? That is a question. It it is, and I couldn't ha- I couldn't I couldn't keep it in to save it for later. Trackball type switch type flip type hold boom, Heli. Very noble of you, but I think it's designed as a two man operation. Dylan, great. I have the strength of two men. Heli explains that it's not about strength. There are two lever switches you have to hold open during the actual procedures. Now, see, this is the type of thing where I think I'd be pretty good at it. Got a long reach. I probably you could. Do? Do. I don't feel like Dylan has Basketball a long reach. Arms. I don't feel like he's got a long reach, but he no, is volunteering pretty, for this nonetheless. He's pretty fireplugged, but he's got the determination. Uh, Dylan says again, guys, I can do it. Cut to Andy. Milchik is coming in with a video monitor on a cart. Ladies and gentlemen, how about a round of applause for the man of the hour? Yep, yep. Thank you, Christopher Walken. We've loved you. Bert is following and he gets a round of applause. Milchik takes everyone over to the video monitor. And I will say, before Irving talks that I was repulsed by this scene. Repulsed. Like, repulsed. Go on. Be- they are killing this man. They are. They are, they are and setting they are up making, his execution and framing it as a triumph. And making him stand in front of everybody and get cheers and to smile and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so happy. I'm so happy before they kill him. It's a repulsive, awful, demoralizing situation. And most of O&D doesn't have perspective on that. Bert, I think, notably does. And get a show of Bert standing next to the video monitor and a sign that says, Goodbye, Bert, is on the wall. Everyone is chanting, Bert, 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 as Irving looks on. 
Milchik says, Greetings, designers. Face drops and, and one, one refiner. refiner. But he doesn't stop. Nope. He doesn't immediately kick him out. You know why? Because he doesn't have multiple people. If he had, had a few other people working there, he could be like, can you please take Irving back? But he can't. There's also probably <clears> no, no, no page in the script that handles this particular situation. So he says, we'll have to get those doors looked at. In the meantime, Bert G., this is for you. And then we get Bert's Audi talking to Bert's Innie. And no, we, we get Christopher Walken. We get Christopher Walken talking to a different to an actor, to, to a, a character Christopher Walken is playing. Hello. This is kind of strange, but a lot of things about this job are strange. Yeah, so <clears throat> I'm not going to go through this whole thing. Yeah. Gets you weirder could, as time I goes would, on. I would like your... How do you perceive what the person is doing here. How did you take this? That they don't know really what's happening or what to say to any degree. And they're grasping to say things that are meaningful and quickly get themselves tongue tied and wrapped up in the process. I felt like it's the type of thing that he, the person doesn't really give a shit. Yeah. Wasn't prepared and just sort of started talking and BS his way through it. And it, it felt like the kid who doesn't want to be in class, who's going to drop out as soon as he has a chance, who's being forced to talk about the book report he didn't write. Yeah, it's 100% of, hey, the conversation with Miltrick or whoever else to informed Audi Burt was very much, okay, so, you know, we're going to give you a severance package. You know, we're, we're in your employment for right here, but we really appreciate your time. But, oh, yeah, it'd be really nice if you could just, you know, come over here for a few seconds and film a little, uh, you know, goodbye to your Audi. Probably that fully level of prep, that, that, that full of... That, that, aspect of complete lack of preparation that's assigned to it and the resulting complete lack of meaning tied to it too and bert i see you congratulations good job buddy bon voyage good job buddy mm-hmm. he's saying good job buddy congratulations good job we're going to kill you now yeah well, i really appreciate your service your reward is oblivion and in a absolutely because at this point in the show i'm just so locked in with these characters this was a stand up and cheer like are you not entertained like moment for me from irving when irving just goes all time. you're all you're all just gonna stand here and let him die and i was like thank fuck somebody said something someone's finally saying the inner thing that they've not been that they've not been saying out loud are we being punished for defying the guidance of the founder Milchik says, Bert's out, he is retiring. It'll happen to you someday, you smug motherfucker. I said it before, I'll say it again. One of the best deliveries of motherfucker I've ever heard. Just so perfectly enunciated and said. I'm going to say it again. You smug motherfucker. You're not severed. You walk out of here with your memories. You carry them home every night. No one can rip them away from you. Snuff them out like they never existed. Like you never existed. And it, I, look. I have up until this point thought Milchik to be a stuffed shirt. Yeah. I feel like this landed with him. I oh, think that yeah. I think that he he it hit him in a way where he's like kind of I don't want to think about it type thing. Like he he's in the he's in the moral wrong, he knows it and he and it lands. Yeah, he, he is coped by having <laughs> this is appropriate with this show called Severance. He's been compartmentalizing certain aspects of his job, removing yep. himself from the more unpleasant bits, framing this as being, you know, a fun chance to hang out with the little innies and see their relationships, anthropologist style. Now that he's confronted by one, of the, one, by one of the creatures that he's been previously, you know, managing, it's harder to hide from it. No one can rip them away from you, snuff them out like they never existed, like you never existed. That's enough! You will go back to MDR. 
he, uh, he screams. Irving does not look like he's going damn well anywhere until Bert intervenes here. Irving looked yeah. like he was about to attack Milchick. Bert, Bert, in his seemingly last few moments alive, is still trying to take care of everyone else because he yes. calms the situation right down. He's Mr. Milchick, please. It'd be so wonderful to have him. Yeah, it, it won't say anything more. And he kind of, look, kind of you know, glad hands, softens yeah. the situation, but Irving looks hot. Milchick walks up and says, you can stay for Bert's party and support his transition, but only if you behave in a manner that brings no shame upon yourself, a founder, or his progeny. I don't know what's gotten into you people today. Progeny? Again, the Egan line. There's currently there's there's currently a uh, an Egan that is run, that's running strange this place. Strange though. Strange though, right? Well, but again, it's very much setting the almost just biblical legacy it's associated with all with, with this family. They view themselves as just a direct line going back to Kier. I feel like this is a a glass shattering moment for Milchik. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he won't care. But for an any to finally say to him. A, when people leave, you're killing them. And two, this is fundamentally unfair what, what we're doing. No one has, I, I've not seen anyone actually vocalize that to Milchik to say, you're participating in a system that is torturous, unfair, you know, morally objectionable, and I'm going to put it right in your face. So you can't hide it anymore because I'm going to say it right to you. This is the kind of moment of where, like in a slave society, if you hear a slave express this thought, most of them are so hyper-react to murder everyone that was even close to them. Because that's the kind of thought that if it exists, your entire system cannot, can, can no longer you know, continue. That, that thing is going to spread, that thing is going to fester, and it's going to bring you all down. Irving looks at him tense, says, yes, Mr. Milchick. Now, let's all go say goodbye to Bert. Cut to Milchick getting a record out, and he puts it on. It's apparently his retirement song selection. Guess what the song is? I wrote it down, but I don't know about the Times of Your Life by yes, Paul Anka. Bert is shaking hands, and we see him shake Irving's hand. And here's the, as he's shaking Irving's hand, here is the song lyrics that are being played. You know, we've talked a lot about how this show, if there's a damn nail, it's going to hit it with a hammer. They do not mind putting the thing out there, right? They don't, they don't mind being less than subtle sometimes. And here it goes. The good times and the bad you've seen and all the others in between. Remember? Do you remember the times of your life? Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty on the nose, one would say, right? Cut to Irving crying as he's walking back, and I think he's following Milchik. Would, if you were Milchik, would you trust him to be behind you like that? Again, I, I think that there, he, he's, Milchik is having trouble catching up with the new reality. 100%. Because I think he still thinks that he has more control than he does. If I was Miltrick, I would I would not stay on the severed floor anymore. Not without backup. Dear, it, th- Here's this, the thing. This if is if a was, powder keg. If I was Miltrick, I would not participate in the system. I'd never come back to work. But if I was bought in still, and I really wanted to commit to this bit, I was going to keep doing the fucking Lumen thing, then the thing to do is to get rid of Irving, like you just said. Because what he just said, that cannot be said out loud among severed employees ever. Get, get rid of Irving, get rid of Dylan, and just... Banish even the memory of them from being about. They are the new painting about rebellion that's used as a warning to everyone else around. And the song lyrics continue. Put them away for memories or time that you borrowed to spend when you get tomorrow. Here comes the saddest part. The seasons are passing one by one. So gather moments while you may collect the dreams you dream today. Remember, do you remember the times of your life? Whew. And Bert walks back. Bert walks back in. Dylan and Mark stand up to greet him, and immediately they know something's wrong. Irving, Mark is asking about him. Dylan looks at him. Irving sort of snarls and says, 
Let's burn this place to the ground. Again, five episodes ago, this was the most loyal of employees, the one that was most bought in to the legacy of Kier, to the wisdom of Kier. And now he is the one that is just the focal point of rebellion. You're doomed, man. Sorry, guys. This is The, the experiment has failed. It, it's all going to come burning down around you. When you have a fundamentally unfair society and people are sweeping it under the rug, there's always that threat of one spark that will yep. light the whole thing, right? Because you, you, you have that, like, that is all risk. That is like, you have this entire society where if people would just say it out loud, the whole thing will explode. And that's kind of, hey, it might, it, it might be our guy, Rickon, who did it. It might be the book, but the, something did the it. The little red I, book. Right now, in my mind, the, the image I just have is just like the, you know, the, the bomb fuse that's just, just going. 100%. Like it's, it's fucking lit and it's moving. And it's moving to the giant Acme bomb from like, you know, the, the Wiley Coyote and the Red Runner. But when Irving says this, let's burn this place to the ground, we have this wonderful moment where Mark looks at him, then looks at Helly and Dylan, and Mark looks back at him and slowly nods yes. Brothers in arms. So there's, this is what the episode is, is giving us, right? That these four, I, I like how you put it, these four are ride or die. That's what mm. we're getting. So cut to Mark, who is drinking heavily. This is Audi Mark. Which, and he's drinking, he's doing the type of drinking that like, like real drinkers do, which is like you get the bottle next to you and the, the small cup, and then it's just you fill and gulp, fill, gulp. It's like a, yeah, it's, this, this is a whole thing. He, he's, he's, a, he's an experienced man at this. Mm-hmm. He's scrolling news on his phone, and what we don't see is any news about Grainer. What we do see is shit like this. New sculpture at Gantz, not pornographic, say administrators. <laughs> Clear indication, just, you know, this is the most meaningful news of the day. Clearly, Grainer did not make, did, the news about Grainer has not reached broader circulation. He seems to be reading the Kira Chronicle. We see that at the top of the webpage, and specifically information about Gantz College. It looks like he has searched Gantz College uh, right. within the within the app. Uh Gantz collect uh Gantz collects um Gantz select to announce scholarship winners. That's the next one. He mm-hmm. pours another. So this is a so he just had about two shots of whiskey, just poured another. It's knock at the door, he goes to answer, and it's our poor Alexa. Ugh. She's checking in just because she cares. The, well no, she's getting her phone. She's also checking in. Well she gotta get her phone. But yes, I do think there's some of the checking in because she does. She does check on him, right? Mark lets her in, and I, you know, again, I'm BFF with Mark now that Petey's out, and in my role as BFF with Mark, I was yelling at my screen, "Mark, do not let her come in the house, please." Good dear God, don't be rude if you need to, but don't let her talk to you in this state. Just say, I got, "I'll go get your phone. I'm just not really ready to talk to somebody right now. I'm sorry about that," and just end it there. Do Ma- not let her in the house because you're a mess. But. He does. Problem is, he's a mess, so he's not thinking that way. Says, "How are you? Come on in. Maybe it's not at home. I found it between the wall of the bed. I would drop. I mean, he's just slurring. He's Mark, a fucking disaster. Mark is probably drunker in this moment than we've yet seen him on the show. Probably, um, unless yeah, it probably is right there with those nights where he's passing out in front of the TV screen, right? Yeah. She clearly notices this and says, are you okay? And he says, I'm fine. I'm just a little tired. I love, I love when drunk people do that one. I'm just <laughs> tired. He, yeah. He tries to get her to stay. And she says, I don't think you're ready for anything. I think you're a mess right now. He apologizes. I'm sorry for talking about her. No, it was too much. And she's like, this is not the problem. This is not it. 
problem is how fucked up you are right now drinking alone. He says, you know what? You can talk about her, not talk about her, whatever you want. So he then goes into a box and shows her a picture of her. And Mark rips it up in front of her. He's still clearly very drunk because he's like, he he's like smiling in the background as he does this. Could there have been a worse thing for him to do in that moment to make Alexa run away and not come back? Uh, kill an animal. Um, I, I, crucifix. I think, uh, maybe like some sort of like crucifix, demonic, possessed moment, like an exorcist type moment. For, for, uh, the list forgive, is very short. Of forgive me, Your Honor. Worse. Let me rephrase. A thing that we would expect Mark to do. That would be no. No. Yeah. You have to get creative to get something worse than this. It's awful. It's terrifyingly bad. He he's, it almost seems like in his drunken haze that he's, this is going to be some kind of grand gesture. Yeah, yeah, it's a great gesture to say, I'm not okay. I'm just doing shit. You should leave now. And she leaves and he's doing the wow. Like, I can't believe yeah. you would leave the, me the, after such a wonderful gallant moment. How this dare is you? you? This, is, this is a problem with you now. I'm okay. <laughs> Alexis says good my goodbye, Mark, and leaves. And I do not think we'll see Alexa again. Not um, this season. I you want to bet ever? Because I'd I, bet ever. I, I'm willing to bet ever. I think she's gone. Mark leaving, leaving Mark there in the middle of the road. And as he stands there in the road, he says, "She was great. She was extraordinary." To himself, Dean Martin, "I'll be seeing you." Is playing. Mm-hmm. I repeat. We- I'll be seeing you. Yeah, I looked it up too. This is an, this is a real old damn song. This is the Dean Martin version, but it, it goes back to a Broadway musical from like the 20s. A Broadway musical that ran for like 17 shows, but the song was catchy enough, kept going. Mark takes the pieces and some tape, and he tapes it back up, and we hear this. This is his voice over top, and I don't know where this is coming from, but it's his voice, and he says, My wife was extraordinary. My wife was allergic to nutmeg. And when she sneezed, she always sneezed twice. My wife liked other people's dogs. My wife thought cardigans looked ridiculous. I loved all these things about her equally. What does this a, remind you of, Lee? What does this remind us of? And we get a zoom in. And who does who is it, Spencer? It who is, is the it, wife? It's his wife. Who's Miss Casey? Miss Casey. There's some version of Miss Casey. Some version of his wife and Miss Casey overlap. Miss Casey. But... What Mark's doing, building up Miss Casey reveal, is straight going through Miss Casey's wellness exercise of just repeating little bits of tidbits about people. Even ending with, I loved all these things about her equally. Which Miss Casey like emphasizes, to. you have yep. to love them all equally. Ah! It's as if both sides are just sharing information. That he's getting from the innie information about what his wife is telling him when he's an innie. And then he's at the Audi. When he's there, he's in front of her. He sculpts the tree because he's thinking about her. And, and what percentage of the actual, his wife, Jimma? What's her name again? Jimma. Jimma is still there. If she's going through these same exercises. Or to what degree did Miss Coble set those up as in mirror to something she saw Mark do? I don't know. I need to know more. So, I do believe Mark sincerely loved his ex-wife. I think that's obvious. 100%. Hey, is she an ex-wife at this point? Yeah, or whatever. However, I do think the fact that any Mark didn't fall head over heels for Miss Casey and instead seems to be interested in Helly tells us maybe a little bit about how we develop these affections, right? It's 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 situational. It's you know you meet a person in a particular situation. They're presented to you in a particular way. 
and you're in a particular headspace when you meet them and therefore you develop this thing. It's not what, what, I, what I think we learned with Mark. It's not as soon as you see this person, you're going to fall in love with them. That clearly isn't true because he's seen any Mark has seen Miss Casey and did not just lose his shit. Right. So there's something to be said about like the situational nature of how we develop these relationships. I agree. Fundamentally, I'm a person that does not believe that, you know, true love or that kind of mystical way is really a thing. It's very much situational. It's very much, you know, two people meeting with similar interests in a, in, a per, in a perfect moment in their lives, all kinds of thing. And there could be other people out there at different times in your life, whatever else. I will note, though, that Mark is no, has been notably very protective of Miss Casey in the past. We have seen that. There is some element of bleed in, even if it is not immediately going to star-crossed lovers kind of shit. But see, I, I think he's protective of everyone. He is. He, yeah, but, you know, so I, don't, I didn't, yeah, I, I don't think that he's just treating her any differently. He's treating everybody else. I, I, don't, I think he's, Miss Casey, though, kind of straddles that line between being a Lumen employee versus being a Severed employee. So he doesn't seem like he has the same degree of protectiveness so like Mr. Mr. Grainer or Mr. Milchick or Miss Coble. But it's fair that Miss Casey's in a nebulous kind of role in between them. But he also never sees either one of them being mistreated, right? So um, fair, yeah. So I think he's he's pretty protective of people who's being mistreated. I just think, I think it's like a kind of an ugly truth of this situation is that like as much as Mark, don't think it's that ugly for some for some people it will be. I'm sure I understand that as much as Mark Audi did love his wife, that 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 relationship developed because of very specific variables that were in play. When you remove all those and you just throw blank slate Mark in front of blank slate Miss Casey or whatever, or Gemma, Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like the two of them just fall completely head over heels and love each other. So I don't know. Maybe that's what's, maybe that's what Miss Coble is writing in her journal as she's baking like fucking turmeric muffins that are to be dipped in like, you know, fucking goat's milk tea. (laughs) 100% 100% guess. I would love to see what little side experiment she's running in the middle of this experiment and what note she's been taking in the process because, man, has she been drawing data. Best line of the episode. Let's go. Okay, I've got some options for you. Let's see if any of them overlap with, with the choice you've already essentially made. Number one. Uh, the entire speech by Ragabi to Mark. You already recited it word for word, but I won't, so I won't repeat it here, but that is a haymaker of a speech that really smacks Mark in the necessary assumptions the willful blindness that he's been previously attaching to his severed life uh from dylan just because it's one of the more plaintive lines in the episode but can you tell me his name that he says to miltrick by trying to find out what his son's name is uh from from miss coble does mark ever think he sees her man does that have some greater weight by the end of this episode than i was expecting um back and forth between miltrick and dylan you've done it now dylan i'm reporting this to miss coble from Dylan. Yeah? You want to go see her together? You don't have any control, Mr. Milchick, anymore. Uh, from Dylan. And now I'm just supposed to have that have that in my head every day in here. And I never get to see him again. From Irving trying to help. He's not your son, Dylan. He's your Audi's son. Dylan. That's bullshit. He's my son, too. Uh, line from Natalie. The board agrees and will be available to meet with you at the Eakin Family Gala next week to discuss this further. Details to come. Uh, Irving's entire speech going to Milchick. You're all just going to stand there and let him die. Are we being punished for, the being, for defying the guidance of the founder? You smug motherfucker. You're not severed. You walk out of here with your memories. You carry them home with you every day, every night. No one can rip them away from you, snuff them out like they never existed, like you never existed. 
Oh, thank you, Irving. Preach, buddy. Uh, and last one from Mark. My wife was extraordinary. My wife was allergic to nutmeg, and when she sneezed, she always sneezed twice. My life, my wife liked other people's dogs. My wife thought cardigans looked ridiculous. I loved all these things about her equally. My nominees, sir. Best line of the episode, episode seven. Defiant Jazz is from Irving. Let's burn this place to the ground. Figured. I wanted to save that one for you. Rallying cry. Put it on a t-shirt. Put it on a bumper sticker. I was so fucking pumped when he said it. Uh, because that's when all four, like we were, we we had gotten so many hints of it, but like at that moment, it solidifies. Those yep. four are in fucking lockstep, and, and they never Koble, will be otherwise. Koble, Natalie, Milchik, the board, look out! You're in trouble because you got trouble. You got trouble coming. These four are ready to fucking go. The revolution is now. I'm Except. with you, now, Lee. You said that you had a firm stance to take on who was the employee of this episode, and I want to hear it. Irving. Irving, represent. Explain. Uh. Well, uh, he he leaves a team exercise and goes off on his own. Well, that first is of all, not a team player kind of move. Well, I mean, I, yeah, you can see the framing there, but like he knows that what Mark and Helly are doing do- doesn't need a third. Like that's not like that important. He goes to try to protect another employee, Bert, who he is worried is being punished, and he accurately sussed out that Bert was in fact punished for that. Mm-hmm. Then he is the only one who, to Milchik's face calls out the fact that this is all bullshit. This is all repulsive. They're killing someone and they're going to sit here and cheer about it. He's not, he, he refuses to go along with the facade. And then to Milchik's face, Dim's fighting words says you smug motherfucker and is ready to roll with him unless Christopher Walken didn't back him down. And then he gets back into with the other refiners and he's the one that like that, that spark, it finally hit the fucking bomb where he goes, you know what? Now I'm in, let's burn this place I, to the ground. Love him. I he's feel like, guy. I feel like it's premature. I, th- I feel like you're calling it too early. I think we need to see next episode. What particular employee bona fides that he represents. Cause this episode, I feel like the shoe in is Dylan. Dylan is just further proving his accolades that he's the implementer. I think it's the word used, and it's a perfect way of describing it. While also being the defender of his overall team. He is willing to throw down. He is willing to sacrifice for the other people's sake, even when it's denying himself what he knows is the greatest value of his life. He is confident in his abilities. He is certain of his abilities to make these things happen, and he is willing to put in the time and the effort to make them possible. That is the mark of a quality teammate. That is the mark of a quality employee. I feel like your prophet Irving, he has potential in the future in terms of how much he can rally people to the banner, but I'm waiting still to see it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you. first of all, Dylan is not, I mean, I, I know you want to get like adversarial here, but Dylan is not a bad pick. Like I Dylan, Dylan's the fucking man. Yeah, and the fact that he jumps on Milchik shit, I really appreciate it. I think the thing that I liked about Irving so much is that he was willing to have the higher level conversation with Milchik, right? Like this would be akin to if Dylan had said to Milchik, what you did is unfair. I can't believe you did that to me. I wish he had said that he had, it probably would. He just didn't have a chance. Him actually having the conversation and forcing the issue with Milchik is the only time I've ever seen Milchik like seem like there was some self-doubt creeping in. And that was really, I I liked it. And then I, of course I wanted to cheer at the end. And is Milchik taking the employee loser of the episode, the wall of shame? 
the biggest fucking well a grainer is probably the biggest loser, hey, grainer right? died doing his job that's got to get some credit there <laughs> okay that's true yeah and the, i guess the lumen line life of duty lumen life insurance policy probably cashes out so his folks are, are well taken care of yeah i mean i think that it, it was one fucking fumble mistake after another for milchick this episode and he, he's just spiraling i feel like he's spiraling in bad decisions what do you think I think we're seeing here the Peter Principle in action, that Miltrick is not designed to actually be a manager. He's not designed to run this floor. He's not designed to act of his own initiative. And being forced to do so, it's failing right and left. He has been temporarily, by necessity, promoted outside of his abilities. Completely agree. 100% agree. It's a great way to put it. Promoted outside of his abilities. That's what's happened this episode. And he is operating in that that managerial space, that gray, that like nobody's telling you exactly what to do. You're going to have to kind of make it up on the fly. And damn, if he doesn't pick the wrong fucking road every time this episode, he fucks everything up. So, as we yeah. saw previously in terms of how Mark described him, he can be very charming. And he does that well when like doing the uh, musical dance experience, whatever else it was. He, he, he rallies the room. Everyone's getting on the same page. It's working out great. He's also great in terms of implementing other people's will, being the guy that, you know, runs the break room. But when he actually has to make decisions, we has to actually analyze the situation and respond to new stimuli in a way that is, you know, adjusting as the world changes around him. He's he's unequipped. He's that's not that's not in his wheelhouse. And I can see how he's been successful in his, his role because he's charismatic. Right? He is. And I could see how people would be like, oh, man, I really want to make Mr. Milchick happy. But when, you're right. When things have gone off the rails and he's not equipped to handle it it's it's a bad situation credit to the actor that actor is charismatic he really does sell this character well sells a weird character very well fantastic a lot of enthusiasm and everything he does okay i'm gonna sit back kick back it's time for america's favorite segment spencer's questions of the week ah question number one Rigabi, what's her deal as i described before kind of the the tone the particular passion she's bringing to this has all of the hallmarks in my mind is almost like a jilted lover like Severance is something that she invented. Severance is something that she worked out, that she was committed to, and now it's gone completely wrong in her mind, and she's willing to kill to end it. Because it's like, it's like Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein has to go kill his monster because he created it. It was his genius idea. It was his hope and his dream, and now it has gone sour and killing and hurting those that she cares about. And now she's going to be the one that ends it because it is her shame. I'm getting that kind of vibe coming out of Rogabi, and I'll be curious to see whether we get any more of that going forward. Nothing? Not 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 not, not even a response. Uh, let's see here. I think we I think there was some answers though, right? Like I mean, you, especially about her motivations. I think in some of her conversation with Mark, I think we got a sense of why she was doing what she was doing. She collects um, a lot I of sympathy guess maybe, for the Emmys. I probably made more inferences and just sort of instilled that in my my brain as fact than you did because i was like well she's clearly somebody who was a top level scientist for lumen mm. who realized the moral issues with what was going on she probably interacted with some middies at some point and saw that they were fucking miserable and is now revolted and is and is working outside the system it seemed it, fairly straightforward to me i agree it seems like her revolt is relatively recent because she was in putting chips in people's heads like pd and like mark, mark probably still very much loyal to the cause yeah, she says yep. she put the chip in Mark's head. Uh, we talked about the card having writing on it, that being, yeah, that all the things about the scanners and the elevators being bullshit. Final preparations. That sounded vaguely, you know, Holocausty. I'm not sure what that exactly means or what that's going to exactly portend, but it did not need to sound as ominous as it did when Milchik expressed those words. And I'm well, on edge with respect to it. They're killing someone. 
Well, they are killing someone, but he wasn't referring precisely to that. At least, I hope he wasn't. Uh, Milchik not telling Kobol. Kobol not telling the board or her co-workers. Grainer not telling anyone other than Kobol where he was. All of them worked out worse from it. What does this tell us about the necessity of a working team as compared to our four separate employees finding their bond by comparison during the course of this episode? A uh, lot of lights in that security room, a lot of departments we don't know about, all employees being monitored to a certain degree, signs that there are other employees that operate in this room for Mr. Milchick to be able to do what he did previously, because it wasn't Mr. Grainer and it certainly wasn't Ms. Coble. Uh, a lot of questions on what's going to happen in the next episode when they actually activate these lights. How long can they be held? Can it be permanent to a certain degree? To what effect, what effect does it have if you stretch this for any long-term kind of thing? We saw what effect it had on Petey when he tried to mix worlds to a certain degree. Is there anything similar that happens when they jump, when they activate themselves remotely and then try to keep that going for anything more than a brief period? Because Milchik pointedly tried to cut that off as soon as possible, though to what degree that was the kid walking in the room, it's harder to say. That is a question. That is indeed a question. The Egan Family Gala. Woo! Didn't know that was a thing. Desperate Put now to see Sunday what it is. Put your Sunday best on. Put your Sunday best on. Spencer, you and I are going to a party. Black tie? C- c- Seems that way. I mean, it, Top hat and tails? Ex- would you expect anything different from the Egan family? Uh, I would expect it to be as weird as humanly possible and then some. I can't imagine the, dre- the dress code will either be formal to that degree that has not existed outside of Fred Astaire movies or something uniquely weird and religious. Don't know which. Don't know what this event's going to be like. Expecting. I don't. I still don't know what to express out of the Egan family other than these people ain't right. Waiting for some aspect of lizard people to come out. These don't know when. These people ain't right. I think that's a. I think that's a pretty good tagline for the Egan family. I, I'm. I'm, return, I'm, re, I'm relying on a king of the hill to express my particular thoughts here. Indeed. It's like yeah. It's like you get the Egan family crest. You know, these people ain't right. The house these people works. ain't right. <laughs> Winter is coming. <laughs> these people hear, right. hear me roar. These people ain't right. Uh, Bert retired. I'm with you that I feel like this is a punishment. I'm curious to what degree there is any way of walking this back because presumably they don't remove the chip. Maybe they have means of deactivating it. Maybe they don't. He just never comes back. Is it just that, or do they actually turn off the technology? Because to what degree are they comfortable? Think about yeah. this. He could, uh, he, he, let's say they do it as never comes back. Remember we talked about the possibility of like, what happens if you have a ton of fucking people with the severed chip? Because you have people the pregnant. out there in the world. You have the lady who just had the, had the procedure. You have now Christopher Walken who's walking around. And they, they, we know that they have a magic switch to flip it back and forth. It also gives Irving a, a, something to fight for, too. That he can be out there in the world with Bert, having flipped them both to a different setting. We will see. We shall. Miss Casey the fuck. Just the fuck. What does this mean? She's dead. Best as we heard. She crashed very near the facility. Did they, Is this a RoboCop thing? Have they waited when she was brain dead and then claimed her corpse? Is this a situation of where they faked records to in some way get Mark into this program, given that he's the golden boy for some reason? Is this all an elaborate experiment about to what degree things bleed over into severance or not? If so, good God, the variables, the lack of control. Is this just purely happenstance that Mrs. Coble has now noticed and is playing with? I don't know. It certainly seems like it's defaulting to some aspect of long-term insidious plan. 
But when did that get in motion and why? I haven't the slightest clue. I desperately hope these two have another conversation before this episode is over. Or this season is over. Uh, and we described, uh, we talked about this already, but the wellness sessions and how the, the, the pacing that they go exactly matching Mark's description of his wife and various thoughts about her. What does that represent? Is this some aspect of channeling through between the two? Is this something Mrs. Coble set in place to, again, is a very intentional kind of testing the system? I think they're defaulting to some aspect of some part of Mark's wife is still there, and this is one of the ways that it's coming through with respect to it. Time will hopefully tell. That is all I have for the time being, sir, but man, am I looking forward to more. What is your leading in the clubhouse? We're not done with the tournament, right? So you don't have to, you're not, you know, you're not helping yeah, this. It's just time being, time being. With the information you have now, what is your leader in the clubhouse theory for what's going on with Miss Casey? Some aspect of she was actually in a car wreck. She was severely injured. We don't know what her job was, do we? But we almost pondered whether she was a Lumen employee to some degree. No, she worked at the college. She, no, we know Mark did. Did she also work at the college? Yeah, that's how okay, they, yeah, so they worked there together. Yeah. Put, put, put that theory away then. So, I don't know. In terms of their ability, they, they run this town. There's any number of ways that they could just grab somebody. They're able to hide Grainer's corpse and cover up the evidence with respect to it. So maybe they just grabbed a person they saw as a potential ability, someone that had been reported as dead, so it would be very easy for them to be forever down there on the severed floor and no one would be looking for them. It's a way of covering that up. Maybe it's an elaborate test for Mark, but that seems finicky as all hell. I'm going with that she was reported dead, and so as a result of her being reported dead and them indicating that she was dead, it's somebody that they can put down there forever in a way that has cover. Otherwise, it would be almost practically impossible to do. All right. Let's memorialize that. Uh, Spencer's leading in the clubhouse theory I, for what's going I, on with the fuck Miss Casey, Mark's I, wife situation. I, I don't think that Coble's intentionally doing some kind of star-crossed lovers with respect to testing severance, because it seems the Coble board doesn't believe this is needing that kind of testing it seems that uh, sorry the the uh, the egan board it seems like miss coble's the one that's doing that of her own recognizance that's pushing the system in that way in a way the board i don't think knows about or appreciates or is going to respond well to well it looks like we're going to get a meeting and i don't think she's going to walk away from that perfectly intact is my house theory on that subject all right so we will be back next week to review the penultimate episode right the the Episode before the finale, episode eight, next week of Severed Sin. Spencer, anything you want to say about this episode before we wrap up? This is the damn engrossing episode of television. And like you said, I feel like I'm saying this every week, but it is getting harder and harder to wait a week to talk to watch this show and then talk about it with you. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's doing a thing that you like, which it's, it's a tight, they're tight episodes. They don't, they're tight. They don't, they don't they're wait well, away. They're tight. They're well-structured. They're well-planned. And this isn't falling into the, you know, I've so often complained about Lost. I think. If, do you watch TV tropes, or do you read TV tropes or anything like that? Yeah, you've you've turned me on to this over time. It, there's a TV trope. It's called the Chris Carter effect, which is referring to the creator of the X Files, about somebody that sets a plan in motion but clearly doesn't have an idea of where it's going to be, despite the fact the fans are all you know working under the reasonable assumption that there's a clear overarching plan. Man, has this show just removed those doubts from my mind. Somebody wrote, sat down and wrote this thing with an overarching plan for where it would go, or otherwise thinking faster on their feet than anyone has a right to be. Because this is such a well-paced, well-structured season of television. I agree. I, I think they're going somewhere. I have faith in the show. I, I don't think it's going to be 
a lost situation where we're all making theories, you know, unknowingly at the same time as the creators trying yeah. to work through exactly where they're going. I don't, I don't think that's the same thing with this show. Now that the show hasn't done the thing that you love shows to do and come out and said, this is two seasons, this is three seasons, whatever. I would kind of like to see that though, with a show like this, where it is a little bit of mystery box storytelling. I would like to them to go, okay, well it's going to be three seasons, right? So that we know that they know where they're going. I feel like that takes honest to God guts in a world of media of where sequels and rebrandings and recreations are all the rage and all that, all that's ever produced nowadays, trying to sell to your producers that yeah, three season plan. That's all it's going to be. That's tough. But I really appreciate when shows have the confidence and the planning to pull that off. I know that you do. All right. We will be back with you next week. Thanks, Spencer, for doing this with me. It is a joy and a pleasure to do this podcast with you every week going through this uh, wonderful show that I really enjoyed. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks you all. Thank all for your comments, for your ratings, um, your reaching out on social media. We see all that stuff. I see all that stuff. And uh, he informs we, we, we've seen a lot of it, uh, You know, a lot of engagement with this podcast. And it's really, you know heartwarming for me because this is a two-year-old show and so people are clearly just following it with us to to to, to sort of follow mangum talks and be a part of it with us as opposed to following like a, a live show so thanks everybody for for doing that for your engagement please reach out facebook.com slash mangum talks x twitter whatever at mangum talks anytime you have anything for us and we will be back with you next week to review severance season one episode eight see you then